The most hated jeweler in America makes holiday shopping easy. Steven Singer has the perfect gift for that special someone who's the center of your universe. The one who your whole world revolves around that person. Who's the star of your love story. Show her it's her with Steven's brand new exclusive star of love diamond necklace. Picture it a star necklace covered in real sparkling diamonds with an open heart in the center. This beautiful necklace is just $128 plus fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real jewelry from a real jeweler you can trust. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the star of love diamond necklace. Steven's real expert jewelers are available seven days a week to help you in his showroom at the other corner of the eighth and Walnut in Philly by appointment only or through email chat, phone text, or virtual video appointments, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Whether you own or rent Geico makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. Go to Geico.com today. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you? I'm good, buddy. Just uh, anxious to continue on with the tradition here of 83 Weeks and enlighten, entertain, and excite our loyal audience around the globe. Well, listen, we got a lot to talk about today. I've really had a lot of fun going back and reviewing stuff from the Jim Hurd era And it just so happens that we're seeing one of his last major shows clash of the champions, 17, it went down November 19th, 1991. So a couple days from now, uh, would have been the 19 year anniversary. Uh, before we, we jump into the show, I want to ask two quick things. Have you had a chance to see the full Jim Hurd interview over at adfreeshows.com? I have not. I, I intend to do so this weekend. Um, Believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I'm full disclosure here because people may be, you know, listening to this and going, "Well, this is such a great interview. We've heard so much about it." Jim Hurd was the guy that that hired Eric Bischoff. Why wouldn't Eric Bischoff take the time to watch that interview? And the truth is, I'm a high tech redneck, and I haven't <laughs> been able to figure out how to get onto AdFreeShows.com with my password and watch. And I was too embarrassed to call you Conrad and say, can you please help me figure this out? Because I do that too often, but I will figure it out this afternoon. I may put a call into Dave Silva to really help me out. I got a super duper private link for you that, uh, will make your life a little easier. I'll hook you up with that. Good. Cause I'm anxious to see it. You know, I've seen clips of it. You know, I've seen bits of it all week long. It's like, damn, this has got to be one of the better interviews that's been done in a long time. And as you pointed out with someone who hasn't really, you know, we haven't heard from Jim Hurd in how long? Almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Yeah. March of 2001 was his last radio interview and it was with uh, Meltzer on the E Yada show. Yeah. So I'm, I'm anxious to hear it and I'm sure you did a great job as you always do. 
and you know, I'm sure it was a great interview for Jim Hurd as well. It's always fun to interview with somebody that does their homework and is coming at you in an interview, you know, with some research behind them and some some actual facts and data, uh, as opposed to just general questions. And from what I've read and heard, you know, as always, you did a great job. Well, I'm excited to get your feedback, and I hope uh, that you guys check it out too. It really has been a game changer for us over at AdFreeShows.com. There's lots of other great content. This past weekend, we had Swaggle on doing a uh, like a, a, a virtual Zoom meet and greet type deal, just taking fan questions and whatnot. But we also announced that we've got Saturday morning cartoons starting this weekend. We're calling it Short Stories with Swaggle, and I gave you a sneak peek of that, Eric, where you got to see a clip from something to wrestle brought to life with animation. It's sort of wrestling's answer to tales from the tour bus. what did you think? I thought it was so cool. I'm so excited about this idea. I don't know how you put it together and pulled it off, but wow. Talk, you know, you, you, the team has done, you know, and I, you know, I often put you over cause you're kind of, you're overseeing all of this. This is all happening because of you and you've assembled a great team of people to work with you to, to pull it off. But the entire team is doing such a great job on adfreeshows.com, which started out to be just a way to, you know, check out the podcast without necessarily having to listen to all the commercials and maybe a couple special things that we'll do from time to time. But it has turned into a full-blown network with such a great variety of entertainment, from informational entertainment to to discussions like we're going to do today, legacy kind of pay-per-views and history of type things to you know what's going on currently and you're bringing in top people you know rebel and I, I saw was on there a couple times yep. and medusa and you know i just it's such a fantastic job this has turned into something so much more than i contemplated when you first brought it up almost a year ago well let's talk about what everybody's been talking about for years but a lot this past weekend um people want your take they're curious since this is really probably the most educated, you know, fan base that listens to a podcast, uh, our listeners here on 83 weeks, they just, you know, they're on that upper echelon of thinking you're listening to this show because you enjoy the business of the professional wrestling business. And boy, there was a lot of debate this past weekend when, uh, a performer, uh, tweeted that she supported unionization and 10 minutes later. It was announced that she was released from her contract from WWE and you happen to know this performer and be a little familiar with maybe the direction this thing might be headed because Mr. Yang has already tagged in and said, I have not forgotten about Vince McMahon and even sag quote tweeted her and said, you know, we do too, in terms of, we support unionization. This is going to be a, this could be a hot topic issue over the next 12 months. What's your read on it, Eric? I'm, you know, I'm by no means an employment law expert, and I want to be really clear that I'm not trying to pretend that I am. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of looking at information that's out there uh, on the issue. And I'm like, I'll be honest with you back in 2000, before I went to WWE as a talent, the first time, you know, I did a fair amount of research on my own, more just out of curiosity for no reason other than I was just curious because I've always felt that the independent contractor 
status in the business model, the expense model that WWE uses, and which relies so much on the independent contractor status of its talent, was an Achilles heel. It was just a matter of time before it was going to be challenged. Now, I frankly am surprised it hasn't been challenged sooner. I'm surprised in many ways, but in, in many ways, I guess I shouldn't be. But there's so much at risk, you know, and let's just start off by saying if I was a, ta- I'll say if I was a talent today, if I was 25, 26, 27 years old and was really just beginning to get my feet underneath me within the, the sports entertainment industry as a performer, you know, I can understand the tendency for people to get kind of excited about this because they think it will benefit their lives. And in some way as a young talent, maybe it will, and maybe it will across the boards in some ways, maybe in many ways, if this whole unionization or reclassifying, excuse me, reclassifying at the very least WWE talent and AEW talent, by the way, this is not just WWE. This is going, if, if this issue becomes a big issue, which I kind of think it will, it's going to radically change the business of the wrestling business, particularly in WWE, because they've been around a lot longer. And as a young talent, or maybe even a a, a more seasoned talent who really doesn't understand the potential ramifications, there's always unintended consequences in any big, you know, decision or change that sometimes people don't anticipate. But I can understand why it sounds great, man, if we were a union, you know, I'd get this and I'd get that. And all of those things are true with with regard to health insurance, other, other benefits. Those, those arguments are true, but what does it do to the revenue model to WWE or AEW or any other televised wrestling company that's going to have to deal with this issue if it becomes a big national issue? It's going to dramatically change the way people are paid. And it may not benefit talent as much as they think it will. It's There's a lot of value, and I've said this for a long time, there's a lot of value in being an independent contractor. There are some downsides. There are. I've, I've been an independent contractor almost my whole adult life, with, with a few brief exceptions, I guess. Um, there is a risk, no doubt, when you're an independent contractor. But there's also limitations when you're an employee or if you're in a union. And I don't know, man. If I was a talent, I would. I, I posted this the other day. Be careful what you wish for. Do your homework. Think about it. Um, think about the unintended consequences and the ways that you're going to be affected if the WWE talent model in terms of paying their talent is dramatically altered because right now WWE, the strength of that company has been for such a long time. One of their strengths was their core business model. And the fact that their expenses and talent being one of the largest was so directly tied to the company's performance from a revenue point of view. Well, if, if all of a sudden now unionization becomes a real thing, or even if unionization doesn't, but WWE, for example, is challenged in court by the likes of Andrew Yang um, and and has to defend their independent contractor status for their their talent, there's a really good chance in today's political environment especially that it's not going to come out so well for WWE, in my opinion. Now, there's a lot of things I don't know. 
There is a, I'm sure WWE has a lot of employment attorneys or attorneys that specialize in these issues that maybe have a lot of information I don't have and knowledge that I don't have. But on the surface, it's a big deal. If, if it's challenged, for example, WWE is challenged. I don't have a dog in his hunt, by the way. Right. I, I, I will come out to you and say, or to everybody listening, I would, if I was an employee, if I was a talent in WWE, I would not want to become an employee and I would want to stay an independent contractor. That's me personally. This holiday season will undoubtedly be like no other. Families may not have the opportunity to be physically together due to COVID-19, social distancing, and financial restraints. Despite the global events that may keep us apart physically, Ancestry brings you closer to family, past and present, through your shared history. Ancestry is the family activity and gifting solution for this highly unusual 2020 holiday season. And I got to tell you, this is something my family has done for as many Thanksgivings as I can remember, for as many Christmases as I can remember. Family from all over the country would get together and inevitably we would start talking about what we've all discovered and it would create some fun conversations as we pass the turkey. And if you can't be under one roof for the holidays, let me tell you, they figured out how to bring the whole family together with the gift of family history and ancestry. That's right. You can give your loved ones an ancestry gift membership to let them discover the fascinating people in their past or surprise them with ancestry DNA so they can uncover their origins. The holiday sale at ancestry is the perfect time to treat someone you love to a gift that connects them to family in new meaningful ways. And I feel like I should remind you that an ancestry DNA test can tell where your ancestors are from. And Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their unique stories. Don't miss the special holiday pricing on truly meaningful gifts during the holiday sale at Ancestry. Head on over to our website. It's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your Ancestry gift today. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. And we thank Ancestry for sponsoring the podcast. Of course, folks like Ancestry make this podcast possible, but man, the family memories that my family has enjoyed for the past several holiday get togethers are all thanks to Ancestry. So we thank them for sponsoring the podcast and for finding a way to bring families closer in a very weird 2020. Check it out. It's ancestry.com forward slash three weeks. Man, Christmas is going to be here before you know it. And unfortunately that's going to be extra stress this year with lots of added expenses. Of course, you got to do your holiday shopping, but there's probably going to be some travel involved. Uh, it's just been a tough year, but I want to make this the best Christmas ever. And listen, you may have tried to do this in the past, but what you wound up with was a big credit card bill and a new year's resolution to get out of debt and actually start saving money. Why do we wait until next year to do that? Here's a pro tip for you. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Go to savewithconrad.com right now. We're going to show you how to skip your single biggest bill for the next two months. If you haven't already, you don't have to make your November or your December payment. You're done until next year. And next year, of course, you're going to start the new year with no, you hear me? No credit card debt. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners get rid of all their credit card debt, but take advantage of these great rates while we've still got them. You can pay your house off faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments, but maybe best of all, get the cash you need just in time for the holidays. 
don't start 2021 off on the wrong foot where you feel like you're digging yourself out of a hole. Historically, most American families dig themselves into credit card debt that it takes months to dig out of, all from Christmas shopping. Don't do that. There's a better way. Skip your next two house payments, get a better interest rate, lower your monthly payments, and get rid of your credit card debt just like that at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this? Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. But that's your comfort zone, as you said, because you've been doing it for so long. And I do want to clarify something you said a minute ago when you said for so long, the business model that WWE has, has been using the, the talent pay was directly tied to the performance of the business. I want to clarify, and we've all heard this as wrestling fans, you get paid based on the house. So if the crowds are up, then, then you're doing better. And if merchandise sales are up, then you're doing better. But if we have to sort of reshuffle the deck at the end of the day, the person who's going to be in charge of making those decisions is going to make sure that the company is still showing the same profits to wall street. So they're not going to make a change. That's going to negatively impact their business overall. And I think that's what you're trying to harp on with the unintended consequence where, okay, we've got new line on my new line item expenses over here on the left side, but we, now we've got to right size this other side over here. And it could be an interesting, you know, 12 months here for WWE, AEW impact ring of honor. I mean, this has a trickle down effect. That's not just WWE. And I, for one, am glad that we're finally going to at least have the conversation because I think the first guy I remember hearing sort of beating this drum was Jesse Ventura. When did you first hear him sort of talking about this and making it a big issue? Was it when you were in WCW? I mean, I know it existed before, you know, back when he worked for Vince, but did any of that stuff become a conversation while you guys worked together in WCW? Yes, it did. You know, again, Jesse and I, although I didn't know Jesse when he was active in Minnesota working for AWA, certainly, you know, we had a lot of mutual acquaintances and friends. And when Jesse came to WCW, I spent a lot of time um, with, with, with Jesse um, outside of the ring, necessarily outside of doing television. We, we spent some time having dinner and drinks together and that type of thing. And, and Jesse loves to talk, as everybody knows. And yeah, I heard all about it from Jesse's point of view and Jesse's perspective on Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's relationship to Vince McMahon. And I, I heard all of that, you know, but it didn't really resonate much with me because I really wasn't kind of, I wasn't interested in the business of the wrestling business mm-hmm. at that level at that time. But there's a lot of exposure there. Look, if a cursory kind of half hour worth of research, you know, people will find that, you know, there is no statute, there is no statute of limitations on back taxes. Can you imagine the fines and, and the penalties that could possibly exist if the independent contractor status of WWE is challenged and WWE has to go back the last 20 or 30 years based on the amount of talent fees that they, they have paid out and then have to go back and pay social security and, and all kinds of other taxes and the fines associated with it. And then, and then comes the civil litigation. So it's, it's, 
yeah, unionization sounds so great. It's like this, you know, silver bullet that cures all evils, but it's really not. It can create a lot of evils that can ultimately come back and put talent at a much greater disadvantage. I do I mean, want I do want to say one of the things, you know, cuz I know that people are going to hear what you just said and they're going to say, "Well, Eric is anti-union." But I don't think that's necessarily the case. You're just saying at least your preference is to continue to do business the way you always had. And by the way, you're not angling to go work for any wrestling organization, right? No, I'm not angling to. I mean, no, absolutely not. And I'm saying for me personally, my personal choice, I love the freedom. I love my, my independence. Um, I, I, the things that being an independent contractor provides to me are, in some ways, more valuable than money. I I really love my freedom and flexibility. And I'll also, you know, not to throw any rocks here, but there's a lot of freedom and flexibility that should exist as an independent contractor in WWE that doesn't. I there understand the conflict. I yes. really, truly do. Yes. I mean, I, I was an independent contractor working for WWE as a talent, and I was told what I had to wear, how I had to dress when right. I was on an airplane. That's doesn't you know, sound so independent. That's yeah. You know, and you know me, I'm, I'm a casual kind of dude. Yeah. I'm not, excited about having to wear a sport coat and a tie on an airplane. No. Um, but there was a point in time when that was the case. So I think, you know, I think the WWE has probably been guilty of overreaching with regard to the amount of control they want to exert over an independent contractor. I think that's their Achilles heel and that will probably come back to haunt them, uh, at some point, whether it goes all the way through to, to, to the extent that, you know, somebody actually does challenge the independent contractor status. And it is determined that independent contractors in WWE for the last 10 years or 20 years or 30 years have been misclassified. That opens a freaking can of worms that right now, no wrestling company in today's environment with everything else that is going on can probably afford to deal with. I'm sure WWE has is in a strong position financially, yeah. and they could probably survive this type of thing better than most. Fortunately for Tony Khan and AEW, they've only been around for a year, so they don't have 30 years of potential back taxes and fines and civil litigation staring them in the face. Um, but it's a it's man, it's a challenging time in the wrestling business, and I'm you know I'm I'm fearful for WWE and and AEW. Cause I'm not sure how this will all shake out and how dramatically it will affect those businesses. But I would encourage people that are independent contractors now and associated with either company to be really careful and do their own research and think about how it will affect them in the long run, not in the short run, but in the long run, how it will affect them before jumping on either bandwagon, either for or against, man, just do your research, talk to an employment attorney, you know, be careful because these are big decisions and big choices. And, you, you know, I've, I've, I've been faced with big decisions and big choices and I've made the wrong ones and the consequences can be long-term and they can be devastating. And if I have one bit of advice that being, I guess, a little older and hopefully, a little wiser is just do your research. Don't, don't jump on any bandwagon, you know, based on emotion, do it, do it based on knowledge and information. And really it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's two issues. It's will the WWE 
you know, go the employee route and that change everything. Or will they say, you know what? No, you really are truly independent contractors and we're going to handle our business that way a little more. So the contracts, will yeah, be but what little- does that mean? And here, and let's dig into that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Conrad, but you, you hit on a really important point with regard to, you know, unintended consequences. So if, for example, let's just play what ifs, what if WWE says, okay, we're going to, we're, we're going to maintain the independent contractor status. And yes, we will adjust the way we conduct our business with relation to those independent contractors as a, uh, as needed in order to maintain that independent contractor status, assuming it's challenged. Well, what that means is, uh, anybody in WWE will be able to go work for AEW for a weekend. You'd be working on a nightly deal, you know, in that look. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, you know, SAG and after are, are great in, in many respects. I, I have belonged to both at, at one point or another in my life and I'm not knocking it, but there are a lot of actors and actresses in Hollywood who would probably tell you other than the insurance benefits it provides, um, maybe not the panacea that people think it is, but well, I will say this, I, I'm really glad that wrestling is at least having the conversation for the record, because I know we're going to get a lot of people who assume because, uh, we're both entrepreneurs that I too am sort of anti-union. I am not, I'm for it. I think it would be great for wrestling. I think it's really sad when we see some of the guys who, you know, provided us so much entertainment and now they don't have health care and they have to turn to drugs. And, you know, a lot of people after wrestling, their lives are uh, less than ideal. And if there is a way for us to sort of take care of our own, uh, I think that would be a good thing. I mean, you, you do see pensions and things like that with the NFL and, and other quote unquote sports leagues. I think that would be tremendous. And if there is a way we could, you know, ensure the long-term comfort, and I'm not saying we need to make everybody who ever took a bump, a millionaire, but if we could try to right size that a little bit and that give them benefits and healthcare and things like that. That would be tremendous and I'm all for it, but I'm with you in understanding this is complicated and there's not going to be a scenario where at the end of this WWE makes less money. Uh, they're just not going to, they're, so who will, so who will make less money? A lot of the, a lot of the top performers will make less money. Exactly. Guys who are making five and $6 million a year will not anymore. And guys who are getting paid to sit at home right now will not anymore. They'll get paid on a nightly deal. The, the, the numbers will come out the same, if not more advantageous to WWE, because you just have to know the dealer. I know everybody listening to this knows the cards, but you forget who the dealer is. And the dealer is the person who's writing the contracts. And at the end of the day, they're going to deliver a strong number to wall street and he will not make less money. Uh, uh years ago, when I first sort of got a little closer to the wrestling business, someone who I won't name said. Uh, Vince McMahon ain't going to make a goddamn dollar less. He'll fire the whole fucking floor. He'll pull the damn water coolers out of there. But at the end of the day, he ain't making any less. And I know that upsets some of our listeners, but at the end of the day, it's his business. So he's going to get to make some of those decisions. And he will, if, if he has to sort of assimilate to a new set of rules, he will find a way to squeeze out the same or better profit. That's just always been the case. And then it won't be any different here. Well, it, it's going to be interesting, as you pointed out early on in this conversation. <clears throat> Andrew Yang, who is a, you know, he's young. He's a high-profile um, Democrat. Not, not that this is going to be a political conversation, so don't, don't, don't stress. 
but he is. And and look, if we don't acknowledge the white hot political divide that exists in this United in the United States, mm-hmm. and the desire for people who aspire to kind of move up the political ladder. You know, Andrew Yang is is mediagenic. He's out there. You know, Chris Jericho is interviewed with him, I think, at least once, maybe twice, that I'm aware of. Andrew Yang has come out and, and very vociferously, you know, targeted WWE in particular for their employment independent contractor issue. Here's a guy who in some circles is, you know, being suggested as being a part of Biden's um, cabinet when it comes to uh, labor, being a labor secretary. Can you imagine now if, oh. you know, I don't know how far fetched it is. I'm not a political j- junkie as much as people think I am. But if Andrew Yang, for example, uh, fills that post <laughs> as a secretary of labor and he's already come out publicly and set his sights on WWE. Oh, and by the way, what a better way to get a ton of television time because politicians are just, they're no different than hookers and pimps. They want to get as much attention on whatever street corner they can park themselves on. And the bigger the street corner, the bigger advantage they have. That's how they use media. And if anybody thinks that Andrew Yang isn't going to target big corporations and being unfair to their employees and all the things that, you know, people of Andrew Yang's uh, political ideology believe and, and work for, anybody thinks that they're not going to put, he's not going to put his crosshairs on WWE. And oh, by the way, who, who who's a senator from Connecticut? Oh, Dick Blumenthal. Hmm. Think he's got an axe to grind? I don't know. Think he wouldn't support targeting WWE in his home state? I don't know. Especially a state that's highly unionized already. Oh, man, I just it's a it's going to be interesting, man. It's going to be really interesting. We're going to be talking a lot about this in the months to come. The most hated jeweler in America makes holiday shopping easy. Steven Singer has the perfect gift for that special someone who's the center of your universe. The one who your whole world revolves around that person. Who's the star of your love story. Show her it's her with Steven's brand new exclusive star of love diamond necklace. Picture it a star necklace covered in real sparkling diamonds with an open heart in the center. This beautiful necklace is just $128 plus fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real jewelry from a real jeweler you can trust. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the star of love diamond necklace. Steven's real expert jewelers are available seven days a week to help you. In his showroom at the other corner of the eighth and Walnut in Philly by appointment only or through email, chat, phone, text, or virtual video appointments, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Whether you rent or own Geico makes it easy to bundle home and car insurance. Having a home is hard work. So get a quote at Geico.com easy. Well, but not anymore today. We're excited to talk about 1991 WCW, and I'm actually going to go ahead and try to make sure we mentioned in the notes. If you don't want to hear this conversation, skip to 25 minutes in or whatever we are. 
because I know that it's not a conversation that some of our listeners are into, but I do think that if I'm going to have this conversation with anybody on my, my quote unquote podcast network here, it should be Eric. So I'm glad we got to beat it up and talk about it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think the debate will continue. Uh, but there's no debate that clash of the champions 17 went down November 19th, 1991 from the Savannah civic center in Savannah, Georgia, and boys and girls, you have got to go watch this show. You see a young, ambitious, bright eyed, bushy tailed Eric Bischoff. And there's some really fun stuff that I think I can rip from this show one day and have you and Jr. dub over when you're doing your phone call bit back and forth and create some hilarious opportunities for us. Uh, the fans weren't privy to that in the arena that night, 6,922 fans were there in Savannah. The actual paid attendance is somewhere between four and 5,000. According to the newsletters, the show does a 4.3 rating on TBS, which would translate to 2.46 million homes. Uh, that's a big number by today's standard, but it wasn't considered a home run in this era. The show peaked at a 4.7 during uh, Dustin Rhodes and his mystery partner, Ricky, the dragon steamboat, who was returning to replace an injured Barry Windham as they took on the enforcers, Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson, but then it actually fell off pretty bad for Pillman and Johnny B bad, but then bounced back to a 4.7 for Rick rude versus sting, which was sort of a storyline thread throughout the entire program. But our main event actually fell a little bit to a 4.5. Lex Luger defending his world title against Rick Steiner. Is there anything to learn or unpack from those ratings? You know, the, the mystery tag team title is four, seven way down for Pillman, Johnny B bad back up for rude and sting, but then down a little for Luger Steiner. Do you think in 1991 that that was something that WCW was monitoring very closely. I know, you know, a generation later, it feels like a generation later, really it's six years. You guys are going to break down quarter hour segments and you're going to know this guy does real well. That guy doesn't do real well. This is a crossover, blah, blah, blah. So strategies like that exist in 1991 to the best of your understanding at the time. I, I don't think so. I think there was an awareness in a, or, or at least an acknowledgement of it. But I don't think anybody understood the dynamics of formatting and producing shows to try to avoid those dips in peace. You know, ideally you start it, you know, if you started at two and you slowly over the course of an hour or two hours, whatever the case may be, build up to a 2.8 or a 3.0 and you see, you'll, you're going to see little dips throughout, especially when you've got a, you know, a two hour show or two and a half hour show, you're going to see that because at the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour, because you got to remember back in 1991, there were a lot of half hour shows out there on the networks that were really popular. Um, so you're going to see, you have to anticipate dips, you know, on the hour or on the half hour. I think it's a mistake. I know I'm going to bounce around a little a bit here and I'm going to try not to, but um, let me just answer your question. I think there was an acknowledgement, but I don't think anybody really understood what to do with that data. They acknowledged it. They understood that it happened, but I don't think anybody sat back and said, okay, how do we avoid this? How do we, how do we change our format in order to prevent these dips from happening? That's number one. I think that people, even today, certainly back in 1991, and I think even today, sometimes overanalyze some of these dips. 
and they interpret, for example, if, if, if you're watching Dustin Rhodes and his mystery partner and it re it's revealed that it's Ricky Steamboat and that gets a 4.7 and in another match that's been highly promoted does a 4.5 and all of a sudden people are going, oh my God, I can't believe this match that everybody thought was going to do so well actually dipped. What does that mean? It doesn't mean a fucking thing. Television ratings are, is such a, especially in 1991, ratings were, the, the, the process of gathering and, and producing and publicizing that data was so archaic that it's just, you know, rounding errors of two or three or four points just don't fucking matter. And you also have to, you know, acknowledge, or at least you don't have to acknowledge it, but you at least should, if you're going to engage in this level of conversation, understand that there are a lot of other things going on on a lot of other television shows and networks at the same time. So people will kind of dip out and dip back. And it's not necessarily a reflection of what's going on in the ring on in, in any given moment. It could be be that you've got a great match that is by in in every way you can measure if you're a wrestling fan a fantastic match that may take a dip because of something else that was really exciting going on on another network at that particular time or because that particular match happened you know at the top of the hour or at the bottom of the hour and it was affected by people just kind of changing channels habitually as people often do i do um to this day so i think that whole peaks and valleys when now if it's a dramatic drop for example if you go from a 4.7 down to a 3.7 and it takes you 45 minutes or an hour to build back up you can probably look at that and say you know i think we might have crapped the bed here whatever it is we were doing isn't working so let's not do that again but to you know to analyze things at the tenth of a point particularly when the just the data is so fundamentally flawed to begin with it's a little bit like voodoo more than it is like science, um, I think people just tend to overanalyze it. By comparison, primetime for the WWF the day before did a 2.3 rating, while All American the day before that did a 2.0. Now, of course, primetime is a weekly show, and this is a special, but it's still pretty crazy to think that there was any opportunity that WCW could actually get a better rating than the WWF, considering Flair had just left with the belt. That sort of shocked me because I just always envisioned that, well, things must be really, really bad here. And of course, listen, we're going to talk about the Jim Hurd era forever and everybody's going to have their opinion, but the rating, Hey man, a lot of people would trade places for that rating today. Uh, let's give you the backstory. As we, we get into this show, sting had been receiving mystery boxes, which reveal cactus Jack and Abdullah the butcher. The clash was to reveal who was actually the person sending the boxes to sting. And it turns out to be Lex Luger. Uh, one of the legendary characters in pro wrestling, uh, Dick, the bruiser passed away in November, 91 at his home in Indian rocks, beach, Florida. He's only 62 years old. He'd been weightlifting at his house and ruptured a blood vessel in his esophagus. And he died from the internal bleeding. And, uh, after an autopsy, they found that he was suffering from a cardiovascular disease stemming from hardening of the arteries which caused that blood vessel to rupture for the ultimate badass, Eric Dick, the bruiser dying from weightlifting. It's a pretty badass man's man kind of way to go. I didn't realize this was the way we lost Dick, the bruiser until I did my research this week, but 
growing up, you know, in, in the Midwest, you're probably pretty familiar with Dick, the bruiser, huh? D- D- absolutely. Dick, the bruiser going back to my childhood, you know, in early teens, Dick, the bruiser was one of my favorite characters, you know, in, in wrestling. I remember Dick, the bruiser when I was a kid living in Detroit, you know, and, and certainly I remember him in, in Minnesota, Dick, the bruiser and the crusher were you know, like two of my favorite, you know, wrestlers along with Ivan Putsky, the Polish hammer, um, and Baron Vanarowski and obviously Nick Bakwigo, they, they were all in that category or that group or that era that I guess, you know, left a really strong impression on me. And yeah, Dick, the bruiser, especially was God, hard to believe. And it's even harder to believe that he was three years younger than I am when he died, but he was pumping weights when he did it. I guess if you're going to go, go doing what you love. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. By the way, I think, uh, Dick, the bruiser doesn't get enough credit. I think he's the first person to call Bobby, the brain Heenan weasel. And of course that's going to stick with him forever. Uh, let's talk about what's happening on the other network. We've mentioned that Ric Flair has left and he's taken the world title with him. Well, the WWF ran the cow palace on, uh, November 15th. So the Friday before this show, of course, that's in San Francisco. This is the first market where Flair and Hogan were set to have a second meeting. So they had, they had done this match once before, and now they're coming back for a rematch because the first match ended in controversy. So we had 14,900 fans three weeks prior to this in Oakland to see this match, the return match drew less than 5,000. It's one of the two or three smallest crowds that Hulk Hogan had ever drawn in the Bay area while working with the WWF. And this was a bit of an experimental show. Meltzer would say there were no comp tickets given out. There was $0 spent on advertising and it had become pretty obvious using this market as a test that the interest in Flair Hogan just wasn't there after the initial meeting. So maybe they just came back too soon with it. Meltzer would say my own belief is that the minute Flair became part of the mix, instead of being an outsider, he was in trouble as he was just another cartoon character who appears to be able to work better than the rest of them and had more name value than the rest of them, but that's it. Maybe he'll get over as a hot member of the mix with upcoming TV angles, but the drawing power he had as an outsider coming in to challenge the biggest star is just about history already because he was rushed into being part of the mix way too fast. Now I bring this up to you, Eric, because you're going to come back with this match in three years and it's going to do tremendous business. The circumstances are certainly different. But this whole, I mean, even the language in the newsletter back then, the outsiders, boy, does that sound familiar? If you position them where they're coming down from the back and they're just a part of the crew and well, now it feels like, okay, this is just professional wrestling. But when Scott Hall comes through the crowd and takes over a match in the middle, it feels like, wait a minute, they're not supposed to be here. And I think Meltzer might be onto something with what if Ric Flair continued to be presented that way, that he's not supposed to be here. He's an outsider. What say you? I don't disagree at all. I, I think creatively, again, you know, hindsight's a perfect 2020 vision. We're, we're all geniuses 
after the fact. We can all analyze things and sound really smart and credible and all knowledgeable after everything's over with. Um, I'm going to be watching the Steelers-Cincinnati Bengals game today. And when it's over, if you want to call me, I'll tell you how the Steelers, if they didn't win, should have won um, after the fact. But if I had to call a play <laughs> during the game, I, 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 I think the, the, the whoever handles you know soft drinks for the players on the sideline would be able to do a better job than I could. Um, but I think I would agree. Look, once people love conflict, it's the essence of it's why the news media, in my opinion, I'm not going back to being political here, but just it's an observation I've made, and I'm, I'm continuing to believe that I'm more right than I even thought I was. One of the reasons that news media is becoming such a powerhouse and literally taking audience away from traditional scripted and non-scripted entertainment is because it's more dramatic, it's more controversial, it's more combative, the promos are better, it's more extreme in, in some of its discourse and dialogue than professional wrestling is allowed to be under the current kind of politically correct guidelines that we all have to live with under, um, or, or live within. And, and I live with under that's not a fucking word you idiot live with, <laughs> live with under please don't make that a t-shirt i dare you um but but you know if flair had been to dave's point i think he's right um i, I think if if rick could have been that outsider and he would have built upon that story and found a way to make it interesting probably would have had sustained success but especially in WWE, you know, and it's, it's, look, it's part of the WWE DNA. It's what makes it work. So it's, this is not a criticism. This is what's made it work as well as it has over the last 30 or more years is a tightly controlled formula. And while the tightly controlled formula of assimilating all the talents within the WWE roster so that they kind of operate all the same way and the storylines are defined within the WWE comfort zones and formulas, you get somewhat of a stale product and you don't try too many new things. And, you know, having, having Ric Flair come in from WCW and remain that outsider would have required to some degree or another that WWE acknowledge WCW. Right. And bring attention to WCW because without doing so, Ric Flair would have been an outsider from where? Right. He's dropping on a fucking spaceship. Where'd he come from? So you would have had to do it justice in giving, given WCW and, and Rick's previous history, a sufficient amount of acknowledgement, which that's just not WWE's thing. No. They pretend nothing ever happened before you got there. They wipe your slate clean. No matter what it is, they wipe it clean. For the most part, now it's changed a little bit over, over time, but for the most part, that is the case. And that's probably why they missed that opportunity. Let's also, if they even, if they even considered it, which I doubt they did. Let's, uh, let's talk about some other WWF WCW stuff. Uh, we know what's going to happen on this show. Hopefully you watched it beforehand. I mentioned it near the top of the show, but we had a tag match planned here. 
uh, the enforcers, Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson back at Halloween havoc attacked Barry Windham in the parking lot. Barry drove up in Dusty's convertible, but we're led to believe that it's actually Barry's. He's got Dusty's son, Dustin riding shotgun, and, uh, they're conducting interviews outside. And wouldn't you know it, the enforcers attack him and break his wrist or his hand or whatever you want to believe right in the door jam, sort of old school horseman style. So when it's time for the tag match, we get the enforcers out first, looking as only they can super tan with their white trunks and their championship belts around their waist. And here comes Dustin Rhodes ready for action, but Barry Windham in street clothes and a cast. And he introduces uh, a mystery op- opponent for the enforcers, a mystery tag team partner for Dustin Rhodes. And it's a guy in a silly dragon head and like a black cape who slowly makes his way down to the very end of the ramp and then removes the mask and reveals under a hood that ta-da it's Ricky, the dragon steamboat and the place goes bananas, but it almost didn't happen. Meltzer would write, since this is being written before the clash, you'll all be reading it after the clash. It's pretty much expected that Rick steamboat debuted on the show as Dustin Rhodes tag team partner against the enforcers. Apparently WCW sent a letter to the WWF asking them to respond. If they felt they had contractual ties with steamboat that would prevent him from working for WCW and they didn't respond. So WCW is going to use him steamboat had signed a two year deal with the WWF, but there was a claim by his attorney that the contract had been breached in two areas. Since technically steamboat was fired by the WWF for not doing two television jobs, even though he had given notice, he was going to quit. That by being fired, it would re- relinquish him from the contract. The combination of bringing in Steamboat with the recent addition of Rick Rude really gives the company a major shot in the arm when it needed it badly. We should mention that Steamboat, the last time he was here on a Turner station, was in a world title feud that people still talk about with the Nature Boy Rick Flair, transitioned and had a very brief feud for the U.S. title with Lex Luger, and then he was out of there. But he did pop up earlier this year, 1991 for the WWF, they had a totally different presentation for him. He was breathing fire. He had the big dragon headpiece. You've probably heard us talk about that with Bruce over on something to wrestle, but that run, well, it's a lot less exciting than his, his prior WCW slash NWA run, or even his original WWF run going back to all that he accomplished in 87 with WrestleMania three, but he is a really, really talented performer that the fans connected with. And it's just fun. And I don't know, maybe fascinating knowing what we know is going to happen with the Monday night wars and the back and forth with, can we use that guy? Can we not use that guy? But some of that existed here in 91. Is it at all shocking to you, Eric, to hear that a WCW tried to ask permission and get clarification and B the WWF didn't respond at all. It doesn't surprise me that Turner Broadcasting would have reached out and looked for clarification because that would have been kind of a conservative uh, legal approach, which would make sense if, if you're in the legal business and you're representing your company and trying to protect your company f- from lawsuits and things like that. It would be the prudent and appropriate thing to do. Um, and Turner Broadcasting was extremely conservative when it came to potential litigation and legal issues. They avoided it like the plague. Um, So that part doesn't surprise me at all. 
I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Don't kid yourself, guys. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you've used any of these excuses or any others, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or even death. In 2018, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and use ride sharing services too. Cops are on the lookout and writing tickets, so why take the risk? Seat belts save lives. So do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Let's uh let's talk about some other speculation in the newsletter that really jumped off the page for me. There was serious consideration given last week to putting the WCW title on Rick Steiner at the Clash of the Champions show. Apparently Luger's contract, which ran March to March, specified a certain number of live dates, and he'd been booked so heavily over the first eight months of the year that at his present pace, whatever the number is, he'd reach it by the end of the year. So in order to keep him working the major towns until the new fiscal year of his contract, Luger's being pulled from all the smaller shows. I'm not sure if this relates to the same clause or the clause regarding his contract being only valid for the United States and Canada, but he also refused to work the England tour since it wasn't covered by his contract and there was heat regarding that. This is at least the second time that there was speculation. Hey, maybe we're going to put the belt on Rick Steiner. Back at Starcade 88, before you were there, uh, there was speculation that Dusty Rhodes wanted Ric Flair to drop the title to Rick Steiner in a couple of minutes, and Rick Steiner would have left Starcade 88 as the world champion. Of course, it didn't happen. Uh, there was a huge impasse. We all know the story. But here, it was at least considered again. We know a few years after this, his brother is going, well, several years after this, his brother's going to get a shot at being the world champion. But I think a lot of people thought of the group but maybe before the Frankensteiner became such a hot move, and it is already by 91 here, that Rick Steiner was going to be the breakout group of the pair if there was one. In hindsight, how do you think that could have worked? Rick Steiner, who had a legitimate athletic background, who was over with the crowd, who is a monster babyface, could it have worked? Rick Steiner as world champ? I don't think so. Not, and I, you know, Rick is, I, I, I have such a fun memory and, and a great relationship with Rick. You know, we, we became friends even after I left WCW, when I was sent home, Rick and I took a, I think we went up to, um, just South of the Yukon. <laughs> we went up elk and moose hunting together and, and, and spent t 10 days up there having a blast. And we've always been close, but the truth is, I, look, Rick was a larger than life character he could do just about anything he needed or wanted to do with anybody he wanted to do it with in the ring. Unquestionably, you know, a gifted athlete and performer. He, he actually converted his athletic ability into, you know, uh, great performances in the ring. He learned how to tell a story. He learned how to entertain, but he never learned how to really get over in an interview. I've said this a million times. I won't bore people by saying it again. You all know if, if you can't, if you can't deliver on the mic, if you can't make your character larger than it already is in the ring, 
by virtue of your ability to communicate with the audience and inspire them or anger them or whatever it is you need to do, you're just going to be, you know, one of those talents that can provide great action, but is never going to be a top draw. And I, I don't think Rick really ever developed the comfort level or felt the need to, to do. I think Rick was pretty happy with his career the way he was. I don't think Rick I'm guessing here. I never talked to Rick about this, but you know, had had someone come along and say, "Rick, we're going to make you the world heavyweight champion." Of course, he would have been excited about that. But was Rick the guy to go home and say and study his own tape and say, "What do I need to do to up my game? What do I need to do to be on the same level with a Ric Flair or a Hulk Hogan or uh, you know anybody else that was at the top of their game at that point?" I don't think he did. I I, I just don't. Let's, uh, let's talk about magic Johnson for a minute. I know that sounds magic crazy. Johnson. Yeah. What the hell? I didn't see him on the show. Well, he's on all the news channels because he's got HIV and it's really the first major case that most Americans are familiar with. It's the first time it's at least entered the national conversation, but in the wake of this story, uh, allegedly WCW uses that as a catalyst to institute a total blood ban, both at TV and arenas. Now, of course, Turner had not really wanted it on his TV for a while, but they would run cage matches from time to time. And guys would be a little old school in this era, sting and cactus are doing cage matches without blood at all. And they're taking such precaution that even though cactus had open wounds from, you know, before this policy was there, he tapes up heavily as to not have it happen in a match. I know it's weird for us to go back and. Uh, talk about this magic Johnson story, but this really is the first time a lot of Americans are learning anything about HIV and maybe how dangerous some of the old, more quote unquote, barbaric practices of wrestling could be. Do you remember when the talent heard there would be no more blood? I mean, that couldn't have went over well with some of the old school guys who sort of adopted the old red turns to green theory, right? It was, and it, it, it had been consistently, you know, throughout the time I was in WCW, you know, in 1991, I think I was still, you know, watering plants and taking out the garbage in CNN center. I was, I was batting cleanup for Tony and Jim. Um, I, I wasn't in the meetings or the, the discussions or anything when it came to this type of an issue, but subsequent to that, you know, there was a constant kind of juice or no juice debate going on about once every six or eight months. And a lot of it was because of old school talent that just believed being red turns to green and you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to make exceptions. And even when Turner would, would, you know, send down an edict from above saying, absolutely under no circumstances, no more blood. If it happens accidentally or incidentally, during the course of a match, in other words, legitimately, you know, handheld cameras, hard, hard cameras, you know, are directed to shoot away from it. If you have to shoot, you know, some idiot sitting in the crowd, chugging beer stuff and popcorn down his face for two minutes while we, <laughs> while the situation is taken care of, do that, but don't shoot the action. If there's blood, that's how extreme some of those edicts came down. But yeah, it was a big challenge, but you know, keep in mind, this is really interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm glad you brought it up. You know, HIV was something that in 79, 80, 81, you know, throughout the 80s, you know, I 
personally, when I was very young and active, <laughs> you know, it was just you know, something you never think about, right? But when HIV became an issue, it, it I mean, I don't want to get too personal here, but I was going through my Rolodex going, okay, who do I need to contact? <laughs> and, and, you know, make sure everybody that's been in my history is healthy. You know, it, it created a lot of fear and anxiety because so much was unknown about it. It was, you know, there, there were people who thought, you know, by shaking hands with someone who had HIV that you were, you know, at risk of contracting it because so little was known at the time and there was no cure. There was no vaccination. There was no therapeutics. There was nothing but the fact that the virus existed and it was killing people and everybody, not only in the, in, in the gay community, but the heterosexual community were so afraid of it, including myself, you know, I mean, it, it gave me some concern <laughs> again, because I was a healthy, you know, American guy in my twenties and in early thirties before I met Lori, um, I was not immune to the, to the fear that, God, what if I contracted this, you know, one night when I was out playing a little harder than I should have, um, it was a real issue. But I, I remember when, when it, when magic Johnson was diagnosed, it, changed everything because it went from being a gay disease, you know, something the gay community was, was really at risk of to now all of a sudden we're all at risk, no matter what you're at risk. And that was a very frightening time. Unfortunately, you know, science, medicine, experience, research, all combined to mitigate the issue, but it took a long time. But this period of time, it was a really, really sensitive issue, an important issue. It's never too early to start that holiday gift shopping, especially because today you can save big on a gift. I know they're going to use every day. Raycon wireless earbuds. This has been a home run in my life. I can't tell you how many of these I've gifted. I've got Casio kid rocking them. I got big booty Judy rocking them. Of course, both of my girls have them. Megan loves them. Everyone is in love with Raycon wireless earbuds, but for different reasons. Now, one of the favorite things that you'll see when you get your pair or you gift your pair, because you've probably already got some, is how easy it is to pair with your phone. I mean, you talk about automatic. It's so easy. Even my parents could do it. But what I like best about it is the sound. I feel like these have more bass than any other sort of headphones or wireless earbud solution that I've used. But I know that what Eric Bischoff likes best about it, and you've heard him talk about it here on the show, is it's a comfortable fit. A lot of these earbud solutions are not comfortable, especially if you have even a little bit of cauliflower ear going on. These are a breeze for Eric. They've got seamless Bluetooth pairing, comfortable noise isolating fits. You can start listening right away. You can keep listening for hours. And I can't stress this enough. The The audio quality here is just amazing, especially when you compare what you get from the other premium brands. And I want to remind you, Raycon start at like half the price. So this holiday season, get them something they can use for calls or music or binging podcasts, whether they're at home or on the go, work, play, whatever. Raycon is their solution. By the way, this isn't just a great gift. If you don't already have a pair, you need one for yourself. But this is something that you're going to use every day and they're going to use every day. Go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks today to unlock exclusive deals 
up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss it. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash 83 weeks. Buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. It is still an important issue, but boy, we all got an education very quickly. Uh, let's talk. Yeah, well, it brought it home, man. It brought it home. Cause it, I mean, if it could happen to magic Johnson, it could happen to anybody. And that right. was, that was like, holy shit. I'm, you know, I really need to be afraid. You know, it, if it could happen to him, it could happen to anybody and changed everything. Let's, um, let's talk about lady blossom. She's been the second for Steve Austin, stunning Steve Austin. His real life wife, by the way. And, uh, Meltzer would say, by the time you read this, uh, lady blossom will be history since Steve Austin will be a part of the dangerous Alliance. Teddy long is being phased out and will no longer be managing Johnny B bad. Although since he's under contract until March, he may pop up here, or there, and we're actually going to see Teddy long and Johnny B bad break up on this show. That's sort of always been sort of an odd pairing, I guess. But do you have any insight or any recollection of Lady Blossom being phased out? I mean, we know that, you know, since he's going to be in this other stable now and Medusa's a part of that, maybe we don't need it. But we've also heard over the years that it could be really challenging having your wife close to the business and on the road with you. But other couples, it really works for them. What do you remember about Austin and Blossom in this era? Almost nothing. You know, but I had been with the company for about four or five months at this point. So, uh, and, and I was coming in, you know, one or two days a week to do TV and then flying back to Minnesota. So I was so far removed from the discussions or, or the rumors or any of the chatter, whether it was legitimate or illegitimate, I was so far removed from it that it was just, it, it, it didn't make, it didn't, it wasn't on my radar. Let's, um, let's talk about the big gold belt. This is uh, obviously a, a major hot button issue everywhere because it's on WWF TV. You're a fan at the time. I never got your, your read on that. When you see the W the WWF programming featuring the NWA world title, what's the fan. And you think of that. I hate to admit this, but I'm going to tell the truth. I wasn't watching WWE at the time. Mm. I was unaware of it. I know it sounds odd, but it's true. You know, I would dip in and out of WWE. You know, I didn't, or it was WWF at the time. I guess we don't need to keep saying that. Everybody is accustomed to hearing it now. But, um, you know, I would occasionally drop into WWF programming uh, prior to going to WCW, but it wasn't, I didn't relate to it. You know, I would drop in if somebody that had formerly been in the AWA was was performing or had a big match and something like that, I would drop in, but I didn't, I wasn't a regular viewer of WWF programming at the time. Well, the backstory is of course, uh, when heard fires flair, uh, he says, I'm sending Doug Dillinger to get the belt. Flair says, piss off. I paid a deposit for this back when the NWA was a thing. Uh, you gotta give me my money back. Of course, heard didn't care. Felt like a pissing contest to him. Told him to stick it up his ass. So of course, Rick. Overnights the belt to Ric Flair or to Vince McMahon. Rather Vince opens up a FedEx box and ta-da there's his biggest competitions world title. 
uh, he quickly has a deal for Rick and they're off to the races. Bobby Heenan starts appearing on TV saying, Hey, my guy is the real world champion comparing this belt to Hulk Hogan's is like comparing ice cream to horse manure. And then of course, when Flair actually makes the appearance with the belt, they start the whole real world's champion gimmick. Very quickly, the NWA starts trying to file suit to get that belt off of TV. And, uh, the WWF would say, Hey, it's not really our issue. It's a personal issue with Rick. We haven't done any damages to you. He has y'all need to figure this out. Eventually cooler heads prevail and the company decides, okay, we'll just digitize it. That actually looks kind of cool, which is something that people started to see on the television show cops pretty regularly back then. So they do that for a bit. And then eventually they order a, a belt that's going to be a similar shape, but it's not as readily available. So they just modify an old tag belt and have him wear that out and still blur it. So the concept is still the same, whether they use the real belt or not pretty ingenious workaround for the company and a very, very hot topic at the time. And it's funny that, you know, we're having this conversation with you because you famously had Medusa throw a competitor's belt in the trash can. So even if you weren't keeping up with the program time, you had to like this idea. This is an Eric Bischoff style idea. Is it not? You know, it's, it's controversial. So at, at its core, you know, there's a good chance it'll be successful. You know, I, I've, I've always believed that. And it's true in all forms of entertainment and, and sports and politics and movies and uh, whatever. You know, c- controversy does indeed create cash and can manage properly. So I, I love this. But I think our, our good buddy Michael Dawkins, I'd love to have him chime in on this a little bit from a, a an attorney's point, you know, an intellectual property attorney's point of view, because I think what the WWF did, what Vince McMahon did, while it may look like a cute little workaround, you still have this thing when it comes to intellectual property and trademarks and copyrights called confusingly similar. And I think had Turner not been so conservative, had NWA, you know, had the legal resources and the right attorneys in place, which they obviously did not on either count, um, press that issue, they would have prevailed and probably would have <clears throat> come out of it with a pretty good chunk of cash in, in terms of damages, much like, you know, WWE did when they challenged Turner over the Scott Hall and Kevin Nash kind of trademark issues. So I think, you know, w, look, McMahon has always had giant brass balls, you know, and, and he's willing to take risks that a lot of other people in his position would not take. And he took the risk. He did it anyway. He came up with a cute little workaround. And yeah, it, it didn't hurt anything because, as you pointed out, people's, the fact that they had to digitize it only made it more legitimate. It made it more dangerous. It, it made it more real. So the workaround actually enhanced the story. But even that workaround, I think, was... Again, I'm not an attorney. Michael Dawkins would be able to chime in on this more intelligently than I can and accurately. But I think, still think had there been a confusingly similar, similar argument with regard to that intellectual property that did not belong to WWE and did probably belong to WCW, they would have prevailed. But they didn't. The most hated jeweler in America makes holiday shopping easy. Steven Singer has the perfect gift for that special someone who's the center of your universe. The one who your whole world revolves around that person. Who's the star of your love story. Show her it's her. 
with Steven's brand new exclusive star of love diamond necklace. Picture it, a star necklace covered in real sparkling diamonds with an open heart in the center. This beautiful necklace is just $128 plus fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real jewelry from a real jeweler you can trust. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Star of Love Diamond Necklace. Steven's real expert jewelers are available seven days a week to help you. In his showroom at the other corner of the 8th and Walnut in Philly, by appointment only, or through email, chat, phone text, or virtual video appointments, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Let's talk about Tommy rich being in the news. Uh, the associated press on Monday night carried a story about a lawsuit in Fulton County superior court, uh, by uh, referee, Tommy young using his real name, of course, concerning his career ending injury. I didn't know this, but Tommy young sued Tommy rich and center stage in Atlanta for $25,000. In his lawsuit, Tommy Young said the script for the match called for Rich to push the referee to divert his attention so that his opponent, Michael Wall Street, could throw Rich out of the ring. Instead, there was a power failure in the building at the time Rich was going to push him. After being tripped and unable to see, Tommy Rich whiplashed himself on the ring ropes, suffering serious spinal injuries, and legitimately, that's the end of his career as a referee. Do you remember hearing anything about the incident or the lawsuit? Because I had no recollection that Tommy young sued center stage and Tommy rich at all. Neither, neither did I until this very moment. You assume when something like this happens, that Turner's going to have a big say and, and there's probably hold harmless agreements and all of that stuff in place. And maybe they just beef it up from here. You, you mean with regard to talents and injuries? I'm not yeah, sure what yeah. you mean. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't know that they would have overreacted or, or reacted in any way to a suit. Like, look, $25,000 in a, it's a lot of money, but in, in terms of a legal settlement settlement, no one would have hesitated just to pay that out. I mean, taking a case, fighting it, doing depositions, putting attorneys on it, doing all the research getting it scheduled in court, all of that takes so much time and expense from a legal perspective that if you can walk away with a $25,000 payout, you'll do that 99 times out of 100, regardless of you know the case itself. You'll do it just to make it go away. Additionally, I would guess that WCW had insurance. Well, I know that WCW had insurance and center stage would likely have had insurance and the issue would have probably ended up Again, I sound like I know what I'm talking about here. It's only because I've been sued so many times or been a part of a suit so many times. My guess is that the money came from center stage and the insurance company that represented them, not from WCW. WCW would have been a party to it, but the money would have come, my guess, the money would have come from center stage and more specifically center stage's insurance company. Uh, you know, I know you said you weren't watching WWF programming, but I assume at some point you had to see it. Did you ever see the skit where Jake, the snake Roberts had his snake gnawing on the arm of the macho man? Oh yeah. Oh God. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that clip is famous. I still see it probably four or five times a year. Somebody posts it and sends it to me. It really was a pretty remarkable angle. Well, I only bring it up here because it's happening in this era on the other station. And I just find it interesting that it feels like where WCW is trying to pull the reins back on some things. It feels like the WWF is trying to push the pace a little bit. I mean, that's a pretty, that's something else. Having a snake bite a guy and then zooming in, you see it gnawing on him. That's another level from the children's entertainment that had typically been presented there. Yeah. Wow. That was never really thought about it in, in that context, but you're absolutely right to go from, you know, a kitty show and a cartoon based show and characters and storyline to having a snake legitimately. And then they zoom in tight. I mean, it wasn't implied. It was, it was so, um, graphic that, uh, that, that is a pretty shocking decision within a company that was targeting six year old and 10 year old and 12 year old kids. Yeah. I mean, we, in our conversation with Jim Hurd, we talked about a lot of the ideas they tried things like the candy man and well, a lot of other silly ideas. They were trying to target eight to 11 year old boys because that is the area where the WBF was just destroying them. And that was certainly the case in my life as a kid, you know, my parents allowed me to get the WWF pay-per-view because that's what I, if I had to pick between the two, I picked that one and my dad worked with a guy who preferred the WCW stuff. So he would record the WCW stuff and bring a tape to work and we would record the WWF stuff and dad would take that tape to work and we got to keep up with it. But the preference for me as a kid was very much WWF programming, not a surprise. And I just think it's in stark contrast where you see an angle like that. It's uh, something else, something else that <laughs> boy, I've, I've wanted to talk about this for a long time with somebody. And I don't know that you were there, but I'm sure you heard about it. And I can't wait to talk about it on October 12th, 1991, WCW had a house show at the Omni in Atlanta. And in a rare instance, the WWF was set to have a house show at the Omni the following night. So this is very much where you guys were counter programming each other and trying to hurt one another. Both companies are in town for shows one day apart. So it provides a unique opportunity for all the talent to get together and have drinks. And they do so at the Ramada Plaza Atlanta airport hotel. Now, two months earlier in August of 91, Sid vicious switched from working for WCW. Now he's jumped ship to the WWF and the newly named Sid justice starts bragging to all of his old coworkers from WCW about how much things how much better things were in the WWF. Of course, alcohol is involved. Uh, Sid's being a, a bit of a braggart tempers are flaring. And as the story goes, your great close personal friend, Mike Graham asked Sid to shut up only for Sid to accurately tell him that he had drawn more money in the past week that Graham had made in his entire career. <laughs> then Sid began to aggravate Brian Pillman, including telling him he wouldn't make it because he's just a pretty boy who doesn't know how to work. There's probably some irony there. And then earlier in the year, Sid and Pillman were in that war games match where Sid injured Pillman during a power bomb spot inside the cage. And Sid said right here, I did it on purpose. And Pillman is legitimately pissed and wants to fight Sid. But Sid told him he had just suffered a bicep injury, which was legit and back down and left the bar. So everyone assumes this is over. But as the rumor and innuendo goes, Sid didn't just leave. 
he went to find a weapon to come whip Brian Pillman's ass and end him in the bar. His weapon of choice, a squeegee. Mike Graham grabs it and people hold Brian Pillman back. And it is quite the situation. I've never heard of a guy going to pop the trunk on somebody and coming back with a squeegee, but that's kind of what Sid did here. When did you first hear about the squeegee story, Eric? Oh, probably a month or so after it happened. Um, and then I just heard about it. You know, I heard it from dusty, certainly heard it from my gram. Um, God, I don't know what I thought of it at the time. You know, I didn't have the same perspective on some people then that I do now because I got to know them better and experience them in different ways much, much after this time in 1991. Uh, but I certainly listened, you know, I listened to Mike Graham's side of the story over and over and over again. Um, I didn't really I didn't think too much about it. Honestly, it just didn't register on my Richter scale. You know, I've never really gotten too interested in this kind of extracurricular activity unless I was there and saw it or participated in it. I just let it go in one ear and out the other. And I took everything for about half value when I heard it second and third hand, especially a week or two later when the story starts to grow and become more colorful. And the person telling it becomes a bigger hero each and every time he tells it <clears throat> throughout the course of a day. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I listened to it, kind of laughed, didn't think too much of it. Whether you're treating yourself or shopping for someone on your list, finding the right holiday gift is never easy. But this holiday season, Hawthorne is making gift giving fun and simple. Hawthorne is a premium tailored personal care brand that's making it easy for guys to feel and smell their best. You start with their quiz. They ask me things like, what's your favorite drink? How do you like to spend a night out? Do you smoke, etc." It was actually really easy. It was fun. It was quick. And I felt like they got enough information to make this a blast. The products that I got for myself were the shampoo and the deodorant. Those were home runs, but I've put a few of my friends on it. And I'm telling you it's high marks across the board. Here's the thing. You get to build personalized gifts for everyone. So if you've got a friend in your life who, you know, is looking to level up their game, maybe you've got somebody who's newly single, or maybe they're about to be married. This is something that guys probably want to have in their back pocket with social distancing, man, you really got to make a big impression when you are out and about with folks. So you want to come correct. You want to make sure that you're looking good, smelling good, feeling good. And Hawthorne is a fun and convenient way to get these super high quality products tailored specifically for men. Hawthorne even takes the risk out by giving you free shipping on your order and returns. But you're not going to return it. And if you don't love their products, they'll even retailer them based on your feedback. Get special offers for the holidays going on right now by visiting hawthorne.co. That's H A W T H O R N E.co. And you can check out all their special holiday offers. Do what I did go to hawthorne.co. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O, Hawthorne dot C-O. It's legit. I'm going to level up. Looking good, Billy Ray. Feeling good, Lewis. You will be when you go to Hawthorne dot C-O. Well, it, uh, it is a, a fun story when you think about, there's a lot of different dynamics here. 
you got the big guy making the big money, talking shit to the little guy saying you can't work, even though everyone with a near shot knows it's the opposite of that. You've also got the WWF versus WCW dynamic. Uh, you've got the injury you've got, you know, this is a, a quote unquote, make believe business, but you've got real tough guys here, but they never really get to test their metal against one another. And then you, you pour alcohol into the situation. It can be a pretty combustible situation, but the story ending with a fucking squeegee is hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like something you'd see on South park. You know, it's just goofy, <laughs> a squeegee. I mean, come on. Well, check this I mean, out. If Sid was big enough. You know, first of all, I would have put my money on Brian Pillman. Oh, all of day course. Long. Yes. In, 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 in a real world situation, you know, Sid's I've always gotten along with Sid. He's a great guy. He's big as a house, all that. But, Brian was a fighter. He was a nose tackle, a little I, nose I tackle. I, I don't know that Sid was ever really a fighter just because you're big and you're strong and you're jacked up and you weigh 300 pounds or whatever. doesn't mean you know how to fight. And Brian Pillman, uh, he, I think Sid would have needed much. Now Sid would have come back with a baseball bat or softball bat. Holy shit. Pillman would have been in trouble. Oh yeah. But a squeegee. Wow. I put my money on Pillman all day long. I don't know why they held him back. Should have let him go. Well, check this out. <laughs> I can't believe this is real. Um, a month later, they run a house show in Greensboro on November 17th. So just a couple of days before the show we're reviewing here and Meltzer would write the funniest thing on the show and maybe on any live show in a long time came during the sting cactus Jack match. Apparently a rib thought up by sting cactus came to the ring with a towel. And during the match, he went for the towel and pulled out a foreign object from the towel, a squeegee. Ah, I love that. When sting saw it, we're going to say that <laughs> when sting saw it, he sold it like it was a shotgun and acted totally panicked, trying to That's escape awesome. the cage. Jack ended up using it on sting who sold the blows huge. Sting used it on Jack as well and ended up tossing it to the crowd. It should also be noted that our friends at front row section D earlier in the show had brought several cardboard cutouts of squeegees, which nearly sent Graham and Pillman into stitches. I think this, I am, I, if there's a list of events, I wish I could have actually attended and been at, it would have been this 750 crowd in Greensboro for this, this is somewhere on the list. I can't imagine how fucking hysterical that would have been. That is so awesome. That is just, that is just perfect. <laughs> I, I wish I would have been there with you. You know, I would have been a lot older than you and you'd have felt like you were sitting there with your dad and you know, I would have done my best to entertain you Conrad, but wouldn't it have been fun oh, God. to be there, be a part of that? Cause that's just perfect. Let's, uh, let's talk about another big story. This one, a little more serious, uh, Meltzer would write nearly an ultimate disaster on Monday as Lex Luger quit the promotion as a protest because WCW fired Harley race. The last word I heard is that everything has been worked out. Although Luger did miss the November 25th TV tapings in Macon because it wasn't resolved in time. Did you ever hear anything about this? That Luger protested to keep Harley employed here? None, not at all. This is the first time I'm hearing it again. I don't want to keep repeating myself or coming up with the same disclaimer, but I was so far removed from 
any of this kind of um, behind the scenes activity that it just didn't, it didn't land on my plate. I don't mean for this to be dismissive, rude, uh, whatever. I never took Luger as that kind of guy. But now again, I don't know Luger like you do. I, I know the current, um, more evolved, polite. I mean, Lex Luger today is a, is a, is a dream of a human being, but we've heard over the years, he could be rather difficult at different times in his life. Does this seem like, I mean, does this even seem like the Lex Luger you knew here to, oh, if you're not going to have Harley a spot, I'm out of here. You know, the Lex Luger that I knew is the Lex Luger that I know now. Mm. I knew of Lex, you know, I, you know, I've talked about this in my book. I've talked about it in different interviews over the years. I never really liked Lex. Um, before he left and went to WWF, I didn't enjoy working with him because he was, God, it's, I'm really conflicted here because I know him so much differently now than I knew him then. Right. Lex, Lex came off as arrogant. He just did. I think some of that arrogance was, and I can relate to this, you know, he's just not that social of a guy. And, and I understand that, but when you're, a big star and you're making a lot of money and there are a lot of people, you know, around you that are working really hard to help get you over. You have to acknowledge, you know, them in a different way than you would if you were just, you know, going about your business. And Lex didn't do that. He, he, he came off as arrogant, whether he was arrogant because he had such a high opinion of himself or whether he was just not a social person, mm. you know, somebody else would have to figure that out. To me, though, because I didn't know him very well, I just thought he was arrogant. He he he, he never. Tr I'm speaking from my own experience working with him prior to him leaving and going to WWF. My only exposure to Lex was, you know, working with him doing interviews, and he treated me like I was a pain in the ass. In, in, in retrospect, he wasn't. Tr he didn't think I was a pain in the ass. He thought having to do that interview was a pain in the ass. And I just happened to be the guy standing there with the microphone saying, Lex, can we get this done now? You know, we're scheduled to have this done in 15 minutes. Can we get to it? Because I was the bearer of bad news right. to, the, to the extent that I was asking him to do something that he needed to do. He therefore treated me kind of uh, like shit. And, and again, never was abusive, you know, any of that, but just treated me like I was less than. A, a, a bill collector, you know, and I, I formulated this opinion of, of Lex being, you know, an arrogant kind of a jackass as a result of that. But what, from what I've learned from others who worked more closely with Lex than I did at this point in time, Lex had leverage. Lex had good attorneys. Lex believed he was the shit and, and, and had a contract and had the attorneys and had some support that allowed him to get away with things that he probably couldn't have gotten away with if he'd have been anybody else at a different period in time. So I understand why, you know, Lex had the reputation he did. And I'm, I'm guessing he earned a good portion of it, especially if what you read is true. I have no reason to doubt it. I'm not saying it's not, but if it's true and, and reasonably accurate, I'm guessing Lex was feeling the benefit of having a lot of leverage and, and using that leverage to maintain it. You know, that's another thing that people need to think about, I guess, you know, when someone like 
Lex Luger at the time came in and you were making as big or bigger money than most, and there's a lot of expectations and you have a lot of leverage, one of the ways to maintain that leverage is to use it occasionally and remind everybody that, yes, you do have that leverage. And if that's indeed what Lex did here, um, unprofessional, yes. Um, Unexpected, probably not. We all know 2020 is a little nuts, but that doesn't mean you should disregard your nuts, no matter what size or shape they're in. In fact, Manscaped is on a mission to take care of your manhood with below-the-belt grooming and hygiene products. And great news! They've just released their products in the UK, Canada, and Australia. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty proud of that because I didn't want to corner the market, you know, on good-smelling balls for America. That's right. Manscaped is international, baby. No more stanky nuts in the UK. No more smelly balls in the down under. And uh, the Great White North just got a little more fresh feeling. They also just released a crop care kit, which is a formulation bundle to give you A-plus balls. And it really is the ultimate male hygiene hack. Now, this crop care kit includes the crop preserver, which is ball deodorant, and it speaks for itself. Matt Coon needed some in the worst way. The Crop Reviver Ball Toner is a spray-on toner that gives your balls a little slice of heaven with their aloe vera and hazel extracts. And if you've been listening to this show very long, you know that Eric Bischoff has long, saggy old man balls. Well, this ball, this ball toner, man, it's really revived his sack me. Uh, the Crop Cleanser, the body wash. Now, this is something we had to bathe Dave Silva in. We had him go around back and spread it like county, but it got the job done. Who could forget the Crop Mop Ball Wipes? Now, this is something Pond Water Dave has been using for a while because when he's making his route delivering Cheetos all over Mississippi, he never knows when an opportunity to strike could actually pop up. I mean, when you're walking around all of Mississippi delivering delicious Cheetos, chicks love that kind of thing, right? So he wants to be ready, so he's using these ball wipes. But perhaps the game changer is the Foot Duster Foot Deodorant. Now, this is a free gift, and it's designed to keep even the stankiest feet smelling fresh. I haven't dared get near enough, but Lois has told me that Tony Schiavone's feet smell less and less like Parmesan every day. Thanks to this. Let's not forget about the best trimmer. It's for your butt. It's for your balls. It's for your body. It's the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. It offers a replaceable ceramic blade with advanced skin safe technology, which helps reduce grooming accidents. And this is something that I know out of firsthand experience that Bruce Pritchard believes in. The waterproof technology also allows you to groom in the shower for up to 90 minutes. And if you need more than 90 minutes to shear your ass down, well, maybe you should go to a farm and just line up with the sheep because you've got real situations on your hands. The formulations here we should mention are all vegan. They're cruelty-free. They're dye-free. They're sulfate-free. They're paraben-free. So you know your manhood is in good hands. In fact, you've probably been playing with your balls while you're listening to Eric give some really long answers. And it's probably time to invest in this crop care kit. Make your balls elite. Get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the promo code 83 weeks. Now, if you care for those beautiful balls of yours, all you have to do is go to their site, hit a few buttons on your phone, and you will change your life and your balls for the better. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with our promo code 83 weeks and add some swag to your old saggy bag. Let's talk about something that, uh, is a little unexpected here. Most were to write. Most people seem to be crediting a lot of the positive changes in the company to the greater influence of Jim Crockett. 
Crockett has been saying things that make sense for the better part of the past three years, but nobody has been listening. And over the past few weeks, they have been in particular Crockett has been pushing for putting more heat on the heels since the company has lacked heels with heat. We don't talk about Jim Crockett a lot in 1991. Did you see him at the shows? Have any interaction with him at all? Never, never. And I'm, this is, uh, I mean, certain people are going to have a field day with a comment I'm about to make, but what the fuck? It's the truth. Um, I, I had no idea that there was an existing relationship with Jim Crockett and WCW or that there was communication between anybody. I never heard his name came up. He was and a consultant. Mind, you know, at this Huh? He was a consultant at the time. Yeah, because it doesn't mean anybody listens to you. It doesn't right. mean you really have a role. More often than not, those are just, you know, vanity titles or a way to pay somebody out and get them out of your hair. Um, I never saw him in the office, which is not a big, not saying much because I didn't spend any time in the office at that time. But, I, you know, I did. Well, that's not true. I would spend time in the office with Dusty on a pretty regular basis. Um I never, I, I had never heard that there was any active communication or direction between Jim Crockett and anybody that would have been Dusty. So what Dave is saying here is that Dusty Rhodes and Jim Crockett were consulting on what should have been done and Dusty was taking some direction from, from Jim Crockett. I find that hard to believe. Let's, uh, not saying it's not true, by the way, just for the record, I'm not saying it's not true. It's just hard for me to believe it. Let's do one more piece of business. Then we'll get to the show itself. We've rambled on a lot today, but I just love this era. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff that really doesn't get talked about enough. Another name that we, I don't think you and I have ever said on this show was let go from WCW around this time, Bill Kazmaier. And I actually had the chance to meet him as a little kid. He was doing one of his strongman stunts in Montgomery and believe it or not, a mobile home dealer. And the dude's like pulling mobile homes with his teeth. Uh, so as a kid, you're like, what in the world am I watching? And then, you know, as an adult, I go back as, and I watch his matches and I ask myself, what in the world am I watching? Uh, what do you think of Bill Kazmaier, the person I, I know you probably didn't work with him a ton, but he's here around the same time you are. Did you, uh, have a, a chance to meet him or get to know him at all? Yeah, I did some interviews with him and I, I thought he was, a just a I know this sounds really weird for a guy to say about another guy, but a lovely human being. Yeah. He was friendly. He was open. He didn't carry himself. Like he was just such a down to earth guy. And when you talk to him, he'd look you in the eye and he'd actually listen to you and engage you and, and ask you about yourself. And, and just, he was just a really down to earth guy. I, I liked him. You know, he was only there for a short period. I think I first met him at Halloween Havoc in 91 is when I first met him. Maybe prior to that. I'm not sure. But I, I worked with him a couple of times. Did a few interviews with him. And I just thought he was a, like I said, just a lovely human being. Let's get to the show. And I know that you probably thought I was kidding when I said, go watch the show. But check this out. The readers of the Wrestling Observer gave Clash of the Champions here from November 91. 91.5% thumbs up. Only 4.8% thumbs down, 3.7% thumbs in the middle. It really was a good show. And Eric, you watched it this week for the first time since it happened. So gosh, uh, 19 years. What'd you think? Was it 19 years or 29 years? Oh my gosh. How old are we? 29 years. 
<laughs> you said 19 years earlier, and I went, "Wow, I'm you know I suck at math, so I'm gonna I'm gonna think about this before I correct him." But no, yeah, no, was, you're exactly right. And I'm like, I don't know, that doesn't even feel like I should be old enough to be able to talk about this. But yeah, here up my old ass is. What do you think? Watching it back for the first time in 29 years. Yeah, I dug it. Um, and look, there was, yeah, it's 30 years old. Okay. So that if you watch a comedy, you know, a sitcom from 30 years ago or an action movie from 30 years ago or a football game from 30 years ago, you can't help but acknowledge how much everything has changed in your particular favorite form of entertainment. So taking all of that into consideration and, and, and not weighing what, what I saw negatively as a result of it. Um, there were so many good things about this show and we'll, we'll talk about them more specifically as we, we go through it. But since you've already brought up the steamboat, Dustin Rhodes mm-hmm. match, um, with, with Larry Zbysko and Aaron Anderson, which I thought was in my opinion, absolutely the best match on the card for many reasons, not the least of which. And I think this is true throughout the majority of the show. There was good story, not great story, but good story. There was anticipation. There was enough reality within the story to allow you to believe without feeling stupid or embarrassed. There was a good surprise with Ricky and the action was phenomenal. So it checked all five of my boxes, man. It's a, it's a Sarsa hit. Um, the way Dusty threaded the Sting story with Lex, with Medusa, with Heyman, Rude, you know, having set that up and threaded it, and then, you know, having having Sting, you know, on the receiving end of an attack. We'll talk about it more in a minute in detail, but all of that, and then using that thread, you know, using me at the hospital as a correspondent, giving updates throughout the show, Jim talking to me on a phone from the desk, added a sense of reality and realism to it. Yep. It allowed you to believe or at least feel okay about believing. There were so many things that from my pers- perspective are lacking today into as great as today's product is. There are still some serious storytelling devices and, and discipline better, better to say discipline than devices that are not being utilized to the extent that they could be, and should be to enhance story, but they're, they're on full display here. You know, this was story anticipation, reality, surprise and action Sarsa long before I ever had the thought, you know, it's all right here. You can see it. And I think it, it's manifested into the, to, to the, to the response that it got, you know, on whatever reader poll or whatever that was, uh, it doesn't surprise me because it was all here. It made the show so much more entertaining. You didn't feel like you were watching matches that just filled segments. Right. You felt like you were watching a story unfold before your very eyes. And there's a big difference. Really is a great show. Let's go through it match by match. Uh, the very first one we see Thomas rich with Alexandria York. Of course, we know she's going to go on to marry Dustin Rhodes and ultimately jump ship to the WWF become Marlena. And she becomes a, a major star. We see her here in a totally different gimmick. Uh, how would you describe this Alexandria York character? Oh, hot. the gimmick is she's supposed she's doing like a sexy secretary look i guess and i think she's presenting herself as um 
uh, more of a, a, a technological marvel. You know, she's got this computer and it's going to tell her man exactly what he needs to do to, to win the match because she's ran the numbers. And so she's like a whiz kid, wears her hair up, has the glasses, has the big business suit. Uh, and you're right. If you're into that sort of thing, it checks all the boxes, but it really gives a, a new coat of paint to a character like Tommy rich, because now he's a little more refined. He's slicking his hair back. He's no longer Tommy rich. Now he's Thomas rich. We're trying to, uh, pump new blood into old cars here, right? Yeah. And going back to Alexandra York, I agree with all your, your thoughts on her character as it was presented. But when I see her here, I also kind of can't help myself to not imagine even for a moment that she's in some kind of a black corset with a whip in her hand, wearing high heeled shoes that she wants to dig into the small of your back or somewhere else. She's got that kind of, you know, BDSM thing kind of going on, mm. you know, subtly. So yeah, it, it was pretty hot. Now, you know, it's funny. I, I think her were, I don't think her and Dustin were married yet. Right. At this point. They were not. No, they weren't. And I first met, God, what's her? I forgot her real name. Oh my God. <laughs> Help me out here, Conrad. Alexander York's real name. <laughs> you don't remember either. No, her name's Terry Runnels. Well, that, I know, but what was it before Terry Runnels? Before oh, she oh. was married. Um, uh, Boatwright. Terry Boatwright. Terry Boatwright. That's it. Boatwright. That's, that's what I forgot. I didn't forget Terry Runnels. I forgot Terry Boatwright. Terry Boatwright, when I first met her, she was a makeup artist at CNN. Right full time. And then she would come down when she had holes in her schedule and WCW need her, she would come down and do makeup in, uh, for WCW. And that's when I first met her. So, um, and then to see her, you know, wow, she's also a character on television. I thought that was pretty cool, but I always got along with Terry. She's fun. She's really fun. Actually. Yeah. Great person. We, we see, uh, her, you know, bring her man, Thomas rich to the ring. And then we see big Josh, which is a character. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about. This is Matt Bourne from the Pacific Northwest. He's going to go on to become doink. And clearly that's sort of his jackpot and becomes his legacy. But I really liked the look of the big Josh character at different times. You even had him walk a couple of fucking bears to the ring, which in hindsight, you wonder how in the world did that get approved? But he has a cool look. He looks like a fucking badass here. And they're in a lumberjack match. Uh, the young pistols are here as, as lumberjacks. So are the, uh, the, uh, the free birds and a lot of other talent, but the finish sees Terrence Taylor. Who's also a part of Tommy rich's schedule, uh, or, or, or faction, if you will, he used to be Terry Taylor. Now he's Terrence Taylor, but I guess they're going to start a feud here. He intentionally tries to trip Thomas rich. As he's coming off the ropes, Josh pins him with a butt drop. Maybe not the best looking finish, but all that stood out to me in this is how far maybe ahead of the gimmick or ahead of the times this gimmick was with this, you know, you, you got to add context, right? That's what we say here on the show. Context is King. We're only a few years removed from the Gordon Gecko character in the wall street movie. So Alexandria York sort of really worked in that regard. And at least for me. And I love the big Josh character and, and what a performer Matt Bourne was. This really stood out as a pretty decent opener starring three quarters is what Meltzer gave it. What'd you think? I, I was pleasantly surprised in, in this match. And I think, you know, Matt, Matt Bourne, I didn't, you know, I didn't know a lot about Matt 
you know, be, before coming to WCW, obviously I didn't watch, didn't watch him break in in, in NWA. I think it was in 1978. He was he was a big part of from 78 to 84, whatever it was. I didn't watch him there. So my exposure to to Matt Bourne was during this brief period that he was in WCW while I was. But going back and looking at this match, this is a solid match. Matt looks really good here. His timing is good. He's 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 bumping well. He's selling well. Wasn't a big fan of his finish. Um, kind of looked goofy. And and again, once again, it's like trademark WCW. Great match. Two great characters. Good story in the ring. Oh, let's have the finish a result of some idiot. You know, barely touching Tommy Rich's ankle, barely connecting with him, and have that cause the finish of the match. It was like. Ugh. For the love of God, why didn't anybody get onto this sooner? Including me, by the way. But I think the match was great. I was really impressed with Matt. Um, unfortunately, Matt, Matt um, died of a drug overdose. For people that aren't aware of that, he's certainly, you know, he's he's known best for portraying Doink the Clown, which I'm sure, you know, Matt is a little pissed off in his grave right now just hearing us say that. But um, it's a very talented though. guy. Se- second generation wrestler. You know, he'd been around the business, he refereed, he wrestled, he kind of did it all, and he worked his way up. And I thought in this match, he looked great. By the way, the name of uh, Mrs. York's stable is the York Foundation. Richard Morton, the former Ricky Morton, the former Terrence Taylor, or I guess former Terry Taylor, now he's Terrence. Thomas Rich. We're trying to uh, breathe some new life into some new characters here, and I don't know. I kind of dug it. Let's get to the next match, and boy, this is... uh, Stark contrast from what we have seen so far. Chip the Firebreaker and Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton gets the win. Four minutes and 52 seconds. Uh, Lord, Bobby had his work cut out for him here. One of the more underrated performers. We put him over every chance we get here on 83 weeks. But this was not a great match. And it's not necessarily his fault. It gets a star and a quarter. But Chip the Firebreaker just looks out of sorts here for me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Chip... Uh, you know, I never got to know him much. I don't think I even interviewed him. If I did, it was inconsequential and just time filler. Um, and looking at this match, you know, he, he was a bodybuilder yep. um, from Charlotte. I think he did fairly well. Top two, three, four, five, whatever, on a regular basis as a bodybuilder. And watching him this morning as I was prepping for the show, in some respects, okay, I'm going to get I'm, I'm just, I'm going to get banished to wrestling fan hell for saying this. And I'm hopefully people will put it into context. I was just comparing his physique to Chris Benoit's in my head, big traps, you know, upper body, big shoulders, not real tall, but really stout and jacked. Now chip could not wrestle. With 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 a, a figment of Chris Benoit's talent, I mean, I can't think of another way to say it. You didn't you? You could not compare firebrandship, yeah, ring work to Chris Benoit. But physically, their their bodies were similar in, in some respects. I thought for a. Oh, I'm going to use the term jacked up, but I don't mean to imply that he was on the gas. Just a big, you know, stocky beef. Are you fucking serious? Of course he's on the gas. Jesus. All right. Well, I didn't want to say it. Fuck. Trying, just trying to stay away from that kind of stuff. But he is. I mean, we got eyes. Well, you don't know that. Do you know that he is? Or do you think that he is? 
Yeah, I know he is. Look at him. No, that's that's called anecdotal. Wait, wait, hang on now. Did you not say he was in competition bodybuilding? Still anecdotal. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Take that to take that to, take that in front of a judge. See how long you last. It's anecdotal. So I only stick to shit I know. I I would guess, I would assume that perhaps he imbibed in a little bit of help, Um, but I don't know it, so I'm not going to claim it. Nonetheless, for a guy who is jacked up, either legally or illegally, ethically or unethically, for a guy who is jacked up, he didn't move all that bad. He didn't have the the timing and the repertoire of, of a lot of, you know, Guys, especially comparing him to Chris Benoit, that was a silly comparison, but for his size, and he hadn't been in the business that long. Right. He started wrestling in 1987. This is 1991. So it's not like he had 10 years of experience under his. He wrestled in Puerto Rico, I think, for the World Wrestling Council as the White Angel, and he wrestled up in the Pacific Northwest, and he had some experience, but he was only three or four years into the business by this time. So I think for you know the fact that he was still green, and that he was a jacked-up performer, and typically guys that are jacked up like that don't have the timing and the, the fluidity that you would like to see in a, in a wrestler. He, he had it. He, he was not bad. Do you want to erase your credit card bills? A credit card consolidation loan from my friends at Lightstream can help you mark them paid in full. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. You can quickly roll balances from multiple credit cards into one single monthly payment, get a low fixed interest rate and free up more money in your monthly budget. Say goodbye to credit card bills and take even more control of your money. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates from just 5.95% APR with auto pay. And there are absolutely no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. And I've had such a great experience with Lightstream over the years. I've told you a long time ago, I got the best car deal I ever had. I've read countless testimonials here on the show. This is a home run. If you've got credit card debt and just for my listeners, you can apply now and get an additional interest rate discount to save even more. Now, the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. That's lightstream.com slash 83 weeks for an additional discount. That's L I G H T S T R E A M.com slash 83 weeks. Of course, this is subject to credit approval rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com forward slash 83 weeks for more information. Let's, uh, I feel like we glossed over something here that I want to circle back to. We've got a great commentary duo here. Jim Ross is maybe at the top of his game. Tony Schiavone is the same Tony Schiavone we grew up with, but the excitement that Jim Ross could bring to what could feel like an otherwise sort of mundane segment when he would get fired up. I don't think you could help, but get fired up at home. And then you go backstage and your backstage correspondent is Eric Bischoff and Missy Hyatt. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It stuck out like a sore thumb to me to see you standing next to Missy Missy looks beautiful. You look like you stepped right out of a catalog and you're so over the top fucking white meat, baby face cheese. And hey, it's like you're a morning DJ. It was hysterical. Now that I actually know you, I am, <laughs> I am offended. 
You hurt my feelings. It was fucking awesome. <laughs> Over the top. How did you say that? What? How did you describe me? Uh, it, it was like a morning DJ, a white meat oh. baby face. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like little of the zoo in the morning show guy. Come on. That's what you were. You're excited to be there. It was fun. Oh gosh. You were so right about that. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy seeing myself on television, especially from 30 years ago. Oh, I knew you were cringing when you watched it. Like, Oh, why did Conrad pick this one? I don't want to see this. Oh my God. I was so fucking horrible. Now I, I kind of redeemed myself a little bit when I was on location in the hospital. I actually thought, okay, you, you actually sound like, you know, you believe your own shit right there. And I made it pretty believable. And I was proud of my work as I was reporting throughout the show from the hospital. That being said, the backstage stuff I did with Missy was so (laughs) cheesy, (laughs) fucking artificial. I mean, it was like a styrofoam cookie. Mm -hmm. It just was horrible. The, the, uh, the word is inauthentic. You know, Oh my God was inauthentic. It's hilarious to watch. And that, you know, and here's the thing. I'm not, you obviously came into your own and became one of the best television performers in all of wrestling, but it's fun to see, you know, everybody starts somewhere. And when, when Jim Ross gets excited and gets hyped up, it comes across as organic and it just comes through the television and you feel it and you believe it. And I think you're doing your best to sort of bring the same sort of energy, but Lord, it's just fucking comical. It is comical. And part of that is, you know, at this stage, this is 1991. All of my experience up until this point had been in AWA and I was like a solo salesman. You know, I had to be that up. I was selling everything. I was hosting the show on ESPN. I was doing the play by play, um, for a good portion of that. And I was constantly selling, yeah. you know, and, and when I came to, to WCW in 1991, I didn't have the ability to shift gears as a performer. I had like one gear and that was car salesman gear. I was just that guy and over the top, you know, morning DJ ish, all of that and more. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't learned how to, you know, cause you, you handle, you know, when you say it, I'm going to take anything away from your, your compliments of, of Jim Ross, you're, you were absolutely right. When you describe, you know, the excitement that he could bring in the believability. Yeah. It's one thing I was bringing excitement. I was bringing energy. It just wasn't believable. Right. Whereas the, the contrast that you're pointing out is that when Jim did it, it was very, very believable. When I did it, it was a styrofoam cookie. And I agree with you a hundred percent. I hadn't developed that ability yet. And when you're, when you're doing something backstage, by the way, those things are done earlier in the day. There's no context. You don't know what you're reacting to. I know that Jim was going to throw to me. So three hours before I actually taped this scene, I could say, thanks Jim and make it seem like it was a live toss when it wasn't. Um, but there's no context. I'm not watching what's going on. So there's no way for me to match as a performer. There's no, and I'm not defending myself here. There's anybody else that's in this situation. When you're shooting something backstage, that's videotaped earlier in the day, it loses that same sense of urgency in terms of what's actually going on the show. When it pops up on your screen, there's a disconnect there. And later on, I learned as other people have learned. And when you get good at what you do, 
you know that you have to shift gears. You can't be the same car salesman mm -hmm. in a backstage segment because you know, even though you don't know what's going to be going on in the show, there's going to be real action happening and your reaction, your you, you, the, the way you toss back should be different. And I hadn't learned that yet. So I just, yeah, I came off like a freaking used car salesman. <laughs> uh, real quick, before we move on to the next match, are you shocked that there's never been another firefighter gimmick in wrestling? I mean, I'm sure there were some on the Indies, but I'm saying that feels like, I mean, for God's sake, Vince McMahon had plumber gimmicks and, and he had uh, garbage man gimmicks. Why was that? Why do you think Vince never went the firefighter route? I don't know, you know, and, and if you kind of want to think about that prospect just a little bit, can you imagine a firefighter character being presented six months or a year after nine 11. Yeah. You know, when firefighters and cops were regarded as the biggest baby faces in, in History. the United States at that yeah. point. So I know the firebreaker chip, there wasn't really, they didn't really add any depth to the, his firefighter gimmick other than a brief, you know, a cursory kind of explanation as to his background, but had, you know, somebody post nine 11, you know, a year or so later when think people weren't so sensitive to it, um, in a very realistic way, not in a gimmicky way, you know, have a, a firefighter gimmick or a first responder gimmick. I think it would have taken on a different, different meaning or different value. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Fortunately, Geico makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. It's a good thing too, because having a home is hard work. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. Geico.com. Easy. No doubt about it. Uh, and, you know, I hate to be the guy to make the suggestion afterwards, but like in the Attitude Era, they could have done, as silly as it sounds, some sort of male stripper firefighter gimmick because once upon a time, I can't tell you how many ladies used to pick up those, well, and men, the firefighter-like calendars. It was like a sexy firefighter dude. Like this is the same company that gave us a pimp and a porn star. I don't know. Could have happened, but it didn't happen. And it just feels like maybe it should have, or could have. Could you imagine, can you imagine a half naked firefighter on a bearskin rug? I'd rather not. In a WWE calendar. <laughs> could have been a big seller. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next segment here. We've got Tony Schiavone introducing sting. Tony has some lovely hair here to go back and enjoy. And Meltzer gave us this recap next game. What is becoming a regular angle on each clash where a main event babyface gets beaten up earlier in the show and then makes a gallant effort later in the show only to lose. This was done to a greater extreme than any thus far since it was with sting sting came out and they're going to find out who's been sending these dreaded boxes. Anyway, a bunch of preliminary wrestlers pretending to be bodybuilders and a few bodybuilders pretending to be wrestlers carried in a large cabin. Out came Medusa and a costume straight from the set of the last I dream of Jeannie remake. <laughs> Medusa came out and got on her knees. Luckily, I have no idea what they were trying to symbolize and is pawing, pawing at sting for a while and otherwise distracting him to allow Lex Luger to then jump out of the cabin and clip sting in the knee from behind. And Lex grabbed the wrong leg to work on and sting had to practically tell him to switch legs, which he did. 
And actually this was part one of a pretty unique angle. And this is a storyline thread that we're going to see throughout the rest of the show. That's very well done. But this first piece where you've got dudes all oiled up in black bikini underwear, carrying Medusa to the ring and this big, uh, I dream of genie outfit. And then here comes Luger to make the attack. The attack is less than awesome. Maybe they should have used a weapon. Maybe there should have been a little more violence, but the setup is pretty unique. We'd never seen anything like this before. There's a reason for that. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I mean, look, I, I, I put the storytelling effort of this show over quite a bit at the head of this podcast. Yeah. And what I'm about to say, I, I'm, I'm going to say in, in with respect to the people that put it together, because they actually did put together a three act structure to the story that played out over the course of the episode for that big kudos, because it's rarely, if ever done, certainly it wasn't done very well in WCW. <clears throat> and even today it's not done as well as it should be or could be. So I was excited to see a well-defined three-act structure telling a story throughout the course of an episode. However, when act one is as fucking ridiculous as this was, I'm shocked. Had it not been for Sting, had it not been for the fact that Sting was so hot, this thing would have shit the bed at the end of act one because it was so, eh, it was stupid. Sting was out of character. Sting having to react and giving, you know, Medusa a big woo as she's, you know, on her knees, you know, rubbing her hands up and down his leg. That wasn't Sting's character. I mean, what, what would, you know, if Sting would have sold that in a more natural way and for his character and, and been less interested, I guess is the best way to say it. I could have bought into it. Had he looked like he was seeing through it, I would have bought into it, but to have him you know, kind of egging it on and becoming a part of it, it made the attack by Lex less meaningful to me. It it just, it wasn't very well thought out, really. And, and I was a little disappointed in the execution of it. I was happy to see there was actually an act one that was part of an entire episode, but the, the open was so, it was so, phew. You thought I was cheesy and over the top. Jesus. We, uh, we have to mention that I feel like on paper, this all is logical, you know? Okay. So here's what we're going to have happen. And so it feels like when you're giving the performers instruction, okay, I can do that. But in execution, okay, Medusa, go out here and try to be uh, sexy and provocative for staying, but. Let's remember, we, we're trying to cater this to family. So there's only so much we can do and Sting, you react to it. And I guess the idea that he thought he was going to get a beach, he didn't know what to do. So he just tilted his head back and goes, Oh, cause that's what I would do. Right. If I was, yeah, but that's not what Sting's character would do. That's, that's what, what I'm most saying. I would do most everybody <laughs> watching this, you know, at the time would have gotten excited about it and wish that they had been in, you know, sting shoes, so to speak, but that wasn't Sting's character. No, it, it, it just, it just was so out of character that it, it killed the first act in the three act play. 
Yeah, that, that was my point is I don't think we had proper instruction to Medusa. Here's exactly what to do or to sting. No, Here's how and, you should and, react. And, and Conrad, in, in, you know, keeping things in context, a scene like this, if you're going to do it, and it can be done well, but it's complicated. And more, more than that, it's nuanced. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, I learned much later in my career is just how much the, how valuable the nuance is in the way you execute a story. And this was, as you said, a couple of moments ago on paper, this makes perfect sense, but it's in the execution where you start recognizing the nuance of what isn't working or what could work better. And I don't think this was rehearsed. I think people walked through, they talked through it. I doubt they blocked it. I doubt anybody saw it actually happen until it did. Meaning there was no walkthrough. There was no rehearsal. I'm guessing I wasn't, you know, while I was there, I wasn't a part of the scene, obviously. So I don't know firsthand, but I would guess by the way this thing looked on camera, nobody saw it actually play out until it happened. They talked about it. They imagined it in their heads, but nobody saw it. And that's why see, when you're doing a scene like this, my opinion, if I was ever going to do one of these again, which I know I never will, but if I were to, I would spend a lot more time. I want to see it as the director because that's really, you know, the director's in, yeah, the director's in the truck, but who's ever calling the shots creatively and making a final decision on what goes on television, I consider that person the director or at least one of them. Um, if that director isn't seeing it and feeling it and making sure it feels the way you want it to feel and is reaching the goal you want it to have, which clearly this scene didn't, it looked good on paper, but it didn't, did it check the box? Okay. Sting's knees hurt. Lex Luger did it. Fuck. He's a heel. Yes. Technically you checked that box. You told that story, but the emotion that didn't happen during that scene that could have been so much more valuable. Um, it didn't play out because nobody walked through it. Nobody saw it until they saw it on television, which is, you know, when you're doing something that's complicated, you, you have to do that. In you hindsight, have to, you have to walk through it. In hindsight. Should we have had Lex a weapon, a crowbar, a bat, something to hit staying in the leg with? Uh, stun gun, maybe yeah, a stun yes, gun. Yeah, I would say I would say yes because it was taking place on the ramp. It was already a kind of a cluster on the ramp with all the gimmicks and everything around. <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of room. Anytime you do anything on a ramp, it's a little tricky anyway, unless it's a backdrop or something that people can figure out pretty easily or are used to. Um, yeah, I think. A, and I'm only hesitating, but Lex, if you hear this, please forgive me. Oftentimes, Lex would not use a gimmick all that well. Uh, he was too careful. He worked it a little too much. And maybe it's because he didn't feel comfortable working with a gimmick. I don't know. That could be true. But um, oftentimes, you know, I'd, I'd see guys in Lex in particular use a gimmick. And it was like, Ugh, that would have looked more devastating without the gimmick. I'm sorry. Just punch him, <laughs> you know, maybe just an elbow drop, you know, take, take Sting down, give him a big elbow drop on the edge of the, you know, the, the ramp or something, anything 
but what we saw, because what we saw was clumsy. All right, Eric, let's run a timeout right now and tell everybody something they already know. You and I love our dogs. And did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. Solid gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid gold was the first holistic pet food company in America started back in 74 by Sissy McGill. Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a male dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. And Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European great Danes outlived their American counterparts. Her first recipe Hunden Flocken has now provided high quality nutrition and digestive health for more than 20 generations of dogs. And solid gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high quality food is the best way to impact our pets, mind, body, and spirit. And for more than 45 years, solid gold has been revolutionizing the holistic pet food category. And they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including whole grain and grain free options, wet food supplements like sea meal. And of course, 100% human grade bone broth for dogs, which our dogs absolutely love. Solid gold foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods balanced with living probiotics and fuel with omega three and six fatty acids, all supporting gut health and nourishing your pet, both inside and out. And this is something you and I can really get behind, right, Eric? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm passionate about this subject because I mean, the same holds true for human food. You know, most of the time people don't pay attention to what they really eat. They don't understand why they're gaining weight. They don't understand why they don't have any energy. They don't understand why they have chronic issues with digestion or whatever it is, arthritis, inflammation, so much of it. And I'm now a doctor. I'm not trying to sound like I'm smarter than I am, but you know, my, my wife and I spend a lot of time doing research about what we put in our bodies in terms of, of nutrition. And labeling can be so misleading. And you think if it's tough with human food, um, pet food is wide open. There's so few controls over pet food. People have no idea of the garbage, and I literally mean garbage, that they're feeding their pets. And most people feel, many people feel about their pets the way you and I do. My dog is as much a part of my life as anything. I mean, I, I, I would protect my dog with my life. But that also includes paying attention to what I feed her. And I, I, I'm going to give you one one quick story here. I was, from the time Nikki, who's the dog I have now, an Australian cattle dog, from the time she was born, I was spending upwards of $75 a bag for what I thought, with all of my best intentions and my effort and research and everything else, I was convinced that this particular brand of food was the best brand of food to feed my dog. And it wasn't until about a year and a half or two years later, I was starting reading, I'm not going to point people to anything, but I started reading a lot of information that really made me question my decision about this. I mean, this stuff was like $70 a bag for a 25 pound bag. So it was like for, for dog food, it was pretty high dollar. But once I read what I read, I went, man, I'm doing it all wrong. And when I came across solid gold, I felt a hundred percent comfortable in the ingredients and in the way the food is processed 
and packaged. That's a big part of it. And my fear was that my dog wasn't going to like it because no matter how good something is for you or your dog, if you don't really like it, you're not going to really eat it or, or drink it or whatever the case may be. So when I got my first bag of solid gold, I thought, okay, this is, this is it. My dog dove into it. Absolutely loved it. And then I paid close attention to, this is not going to sound cool, but if you really are paying attention to your dog, you know, I checked her stool to make sure that everything was as it should be or would you would expect it to be, especially when you switch a dog's food because sometimes your dogs have a hard time adjusting or not a hard time, but it just takes a couple days for the metabolism to adjust to, you know, a new product. Absolutely no adjustment period, which meant that it was easily digestible, which meant that the quality was good, and she loved it. She loved it. So I can't say enough great things about this particular brand, and I can't say enough about doing the work. If you love your dog or your cat, if you love your pet, please, please, please do the research and make sure, just like you would your kids, you know, you wouldn't feed your kids poison or garbage or food that wasn't good for them. Hopefully you wouldn't. Don't do it to your pets. Do the research. If you, if you don't have time, if you're not interested in doing all of the research, take my word for it. Take Conrad's word for it. This is a great product. Right now, to see the solid gold deal of the week, go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. That's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to see the deal of the week. Remember it's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Let's talk about the next match. We get Tom Zink working with the diamond stud who we know is going to go on to be a big star. Uh, Tom Zink pins diamond stud in a minute and 24 seconds with a crucifix. Yep. That's real. After the match stud beats up Z man and gives him the diamond death drop and leaves him laying. But most of this match is really just in the background. They even sort of shrink it to half the screen because we're seeing sting on the other window, uh, go out of the building in an ambulance to the nearest medical facility with Bobby Eaton reminding him he has plenty of time, which is a very subtle way of starting the Bobby Eaton turn. The action in the match is actually pretty good here with zinc and stud, but in hindsight, it's kind of hilarious that Z man picked up the win here. What'd you think? I mean, this is sort of step two of this story. We're trying to tell sting going to the hospital. I kind of dug this. What'd you think? I did too. I did too. And you're right about the action with, um, zinc and hall. I thought the match was really, really good. My guess is that Scott hall was probably already on his way out the door or thinking about it at this point. Um, it wasn't too long afterwards that he did leave. But the match I thought was really, really good, but it didn't have, it, it was inconsequential. There was nothing at stake. It wasn't a title match. It was just a, I hate to say just a great match because there weren't a lot of great matches in WCW often, but this was a good one. I thought Zink looked as good as he's ever looked in there. And a lot of that had to do with Scott Hall, but I, I loved it. I thought Scott looked great. I thought the match looked great. I think the picture within the picture treatment was warranted given you know, what was going on with Sting and the image that they were trying to create, the story they were trying to tell. It didn't take anything away from Zink and Hall since it wasn't so much at stake anyway. And it added to the urgency and the believability and the reality of, of Sting's setup, you know, for what was about to come. So I dug it. Next up, we see stunning Steve Austin 
pin PN news to retain his WCW title in four minutes and 21 seconds. It's pretty hard to imagine the, the talent we've seen so far. Let's recap. We've got a guy who was the former NWA world champion, Tommy rich, a guy who's going to go on to be doink Bobby freaking Eaton hall of famer. No doubt about it. Uh, the diamond stud who's going to go on to be razor Ramon. And of course, Scott hall. And now we've got PN news working with what will become the biggest star in the history of the business. Steve Austin. That's all for the TV title. Austin gets the win about four and a half minutes. Lady blossom comes out and Meltzer says in her final appearance with an outfit that covered her up, I guess they wanted to make sure she didn't make an impression on her last TV. We'll take a time out right there because in this era, lady blossom had had, um, very revealing outfits. And I think, uh, dusty made the comment once, uh, her cup spilleth over, uh, they're trying to do something a little different here for her last shot. According to Meltzer, uh, he would continue pretty hot pacing, a few sloppy spots and a few good spots. But the biggest negative was when news tried a drop kick and didn't get one foot off the ground news hit the belly to belly, but blossom put Austin's leg on the ropes before the three count news chase blossom and Austin dove over the top rope onto news who crashed into the guardrail news got back in the ring and went for a splash in the corner, but Austin moved. So news would hit the buckles and then Austin pins in with his feet on the ropes, two and a quarter stars. According to the readers of the observer, it's the worst match on the card. But I got to say for a PN news match, it was better than I expected. what do you think? Oh, <sighs> it was painful for me to watch. I guess. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't bad for a PN news match. And if you want to put it in that context, I, I would agree with that. I just, I guess. You know, knowing now what I didn't know then and <clears throat> what Steve, you know, went on to become, <clears throat> it was weird watching this. It was just weird seeing Brad in there with BN News. And, you know, BN was trained, you know, he's trained by Brad Rangens. So it's not like he didn't have the training. He wrestled in Europe. Um, he'd only been in, in, in WCW for a short period of time, I think. Uh, he didn't come into WCW until 1991, probably about the same time I did. And I remember him. I didn't really dig the gimmick, but whatever. But it was tough watching this match. You know, the toughest part of watching this match for me was looking at the tights that Austin was wearing in this match. Yeah. It sticks out, doesn't it? What the hell? Steve, what were you thinking? Did you think because Steve, Austin, listen up, listen up, kid. He's younger than me. I can say that. Were you thinking, Steve, because you had Lady Blossom outside of the ring and you had that glorious head of hair? I mean, you had that Chris Jericho-like hair going on. I mean, Chris Jericho from a few years ago, you know, when he had those that golden mane, you know. Steve, what made you, when you got up in the morning and you knew you were going to have this match, uh, on on the Clash of the Champions in front of millions of people, what motivated you to put on a pair of Joker tights? Those are ridiculous. Steve, I want to know. I'll be listening to your show for your comeback. Thank you. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about PN News for a moment here. Lots of rumor and innuendo around this guy. I saw in my research, and I had no idea this was the case. 
that PN news, real life cousin is Mantar from the WWF. And I know you have no idea what that is, but he had like a Buffalo head and a real bot. Yeah. It's a real thing. Anyway, allegedly he had heat with a lot of the boys in the locker room. He being PN news pronouns, pal, because there were accusations that he was a thief. And that while guys were working, he would go through their bags and take their money. Now, of really? course, he's denied this for years and years. Um, but it was a, you know, heavy set black guy in spandex rapping. And that was sort of a thing in the era. You know, you had the fat boys and yo MTV raps and hip hop was starting to become a, a much more common thing. So it's an interesting gimmick and maybe a pretty controversial end to the gimmick with these rumor and innuendo out there, had you, uh, based on your reaction, I'm going to take it. You've never heard those accusations. No, I never did. I don't think I any of it's did. ever been substantiated. So I don't even know how fair it is, but you know, that maybe it was a gimmick. Maybe that was the gimmick to help get his character over. Who knows? <laughs> Let's talk. I mean, if you're a heel rapper, are uh, you going to do what you need to do to make bank? Isn't that the gimmick? That is the gimmick, I guess. Yeah. All right. So maybe it was all a work, but you weren't involved and you sort of created working the boys. So yeah, it couldn't have been, I don't know. Next up, we've got cactus Jack and he's got uh, a rather interesting opponent and boy, we're, we're going to hit all the controversies today. He's taken on van hammer and van hammer is another guy who, for whatever reason, has had a lot of heat with other talent. I think, uh, Jim Hurd was, was real high on him. I know dusty was real high on him. They felt like they had a superstar because he's a big jacked up dude. He's tall. He's got a unique look. We can make this guy something. And they decided to make him a rock and roll star. So as he's coming to the ring, they're going to show clips of his music video, showing him driving a Harley and, uh, playing guitar with his band in a wrestling ring. Of course, he doesn't actually play guitar, but when we finally see him at the top of the ramp, he has a, an effect where he can shoot fireworks out of the end of his guitar spins the big triangle shaped ax around his neck and, uh, fans are supposed to be going wild based on what you hear Jim Ross saying, but then you actually see the crowd and they're not, but they've positioned (laughs) him like he's the next big thing. And he certainly has a look. I get that, but the hype and the pomp and circumstance Meltzer would say the announcers were pushing Van Hammer as something slightly bigger than Hulk Hogan. And they did a nice television entrance where they intersped his video with his actual entrance. But while Jim Ross was screaming about how crazy the crowd was going, the real reaction was lukewarm. And once the match started, the reaction died. But allegedly the company really believed in Van Hammer thought he was going to be somebody. And I think he rubbed a lot of guys the wrong way because he sort of carried himself that way. And. Arn Anderson has famously said, uh, don't worry guys. Van Hammer told me he's here to save us. But allegedly <laughs> in an interaction with Arn, they're talking about their goals or whatever. Well, I'm here to save the company. Van Hammer had heat. What can you tell us about Van Hammer heat? I was pretty aware of it. You know, even though I was, you know, I was in the role I was in and that, not near management or conversations around it, but it was. You know, if you went into the if you went into catering to grab a sandwich, you'd hear about it. You know, you could see it, and 
you know, DDP was like, it's interesting. You know, Page is always, he's the guy that always wants to help everybody. Right. Wants to, he wants to fix you no matter who you are or what's wrong with you. He's going to find a way to at least attempt to fix you. And I was, you know, reasonably close to Page at the time. Not as close as we became later on, but we were pretty friendly at this point. And, and Page would, you know, all, often talk to me about, you know, Van Hammer and how, you know, he's got, of course, you know, Dusty was high on Van Hammer Page was, you know, looked up to Dusty as a mentor in many ways. So if Dusty was going to be high on, on Van Hammer, so was Page. And that's, you know, that's as it should be. That's loyalty, and I respect it. But, I, you know, I would sit and listen to Page go on and on about Hammer, and I just, I'd shake my head. You know, I was a fan of Dusty's too and all that, but I just didn't see it, you know. But you could see the heat. And it, you know, I, I understand it. Here's a guy that comes in from out of nowhere with no real experience, no real track record, real no real anything. Um, fundamental talent, yes. Could he get through a match? Yes. But he had this phenomenal look. He was a great-looking guy at that stage of his life. He, you know, if he didn't look like, you know, a a, a Van Halen type character right out of central casting in a Van Halen knockoff movie. I don't know who did, but he just didn't have the talent to back it up. That being said, this match he had on this show, there were not a lot of holes in it. He was green. He was young. Yes. But he, I think he exceeded my expectations. I expected much worse on the show than I saw out of Van Hammer. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is he has all this heat, but he shows a lot of agility. I mean, even the way he, he jumps from the, uh, the floor to the ring apron and then jumps over the top rope. There's a few times where you see flashes of real natural athletic ability, but for whatever reason, he wasn't able to really put it all together. But even Meltzer said, and he, although we did give the credit to cactus Jack, he says, this is hammer's best performance thus far. And the two worked surprisingly well together, particularly in both tumbling over the top for a clothesline. Um, Meltzer would write cactus kicked out of a knee drop from the top rope after a collision, Jack hit hammer with his own guitar and got the pin. And after the match hammer gave Jack a shoulder block and a slingshot suplex onto the ramp. And they brawled to the back. Uh, only during the post-match brawling did hammer actually look pretty bad two and a quarter stars. You know, I don't know that he necessarily got a fair shake. Maybe it's because he came in with such a big push and he was so resented. Maybe there was a different way to present him, but either way. Fans just vomit him up. He won the observer's most embarrassing wrestler award for 1991. And that's saying something for 1991, but I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I didn't think it was nearly as bad as maybe we expected when we see it on paper. No. And I, you know, I understand why Meltzer would have given, um, credit to Mick, um, because I'm sure Mick spent a great deal of time working with Van Hammer, just knowing Mick the way I do, I'm sure Mick spent a lot of time working this match out with him so that it could be the best it could be. But aside from laying out the match and all of the contributions that Mick did make, which I will give him credit for and agree with Meltzer on, Van Hammer lived up to his end of the physical bargain and more. He, he not, he, his, not only did he do some cool things, you know, getting into the ring and up over the top rope and all those things are true and, and he should be credited for those things, but his fluidity and his timing in the ring, 
was also really, really good in this this particular show. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I look for. I mean, I look for those just those where you're off a half a beat in in terms of your fluidity. Your timing's just not quite where it should have been. Um, I thought from my you know, I'm not Tom Pritchard, right? I don't have that expertise or that ability to break a match down. I can just look at it from a producer's perspective. And was it entertaining? And did it allow me to believe in the moment? And I think Van Hammer did a very good job here. Better than very good. For, for, for his level of experience at that time, I think he did an outstanding job in this match. And by the way, as sort of cheese and hokey as it is now, for 1991, the music video in the entrance was pretty fucking cool. Yeah, it was, you know, Dusty was big on that. Dusty, Dusty was ahead of his time in so many different ways at different periods of his career. But this was one of the things about presenting the story and presenting the character that, you know, Dusty was very, very passionate about and put a lot of time and thought into. So, um, I agree with you. It was outstanding. It was ahead of its time and it was, uh, a result of, of Dusty's passion for this type of storytelling and character building. At this point, we do something really fun that I'm going to have us recreate over at adfreakshows.com one day. We do a phone interview with Eric Bischoff on location with Sting at this parts unknown medical facility. And they're showing your picture and Savannah on the map of the United States in the lower right-hand corner of the country. And we've got an old school telephone ringside and we see Jim Ross talking on it. This comes across, and I know, you know, some of our younger listeners think how archaic is this, but this came across as real. I mean, that like, this would have been something that was really a news event, the way it was handled and positioned. I liked it a lot. And I think we can recreate this by the way. We'll just, uh, we'll snatch the video and then overdub you and, 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 uh, Jim Ross having a conversation. Because we actually have a telephone filter thing in our software. So I, I had a lot of fun, funny ideas we could do with this, but the actual piece of business here was pretty entertaining. It was, um, believable. Yep. And one of the reasons you've often heard me talk about this Conrad, and sometimes I, I make statements, but I don't go into specific detail to back them up. One of the things that I criticize WWE for in particular is being so fucking good at what they do that it no longer feels live. Right. They're so good at live TV that it almost comes across like it spent a month in post-production making it, making sure it was as perfect as it could be. And that's, that's a credit to them. I mean, they've taken live event production in this form of, of entertainment sports and sports entertainment. They've, perfected it to the degree that it now often feels like a movie instead of, of a live action combat esque show, but you lose the realness. You lose the realness. Now here's, here's an example of when I talk about the power of live television, where sometimes things go wrong because it's live and people expect it. They'll forgive it. They understand it if it's presented at the right time. And in this case here, the struggle between Jim Ross and I in making that connection, that wasn't real. 
but it was made feel real. Now, if Jim would have picked up the phone and said, Eric, are you there? And Eric would have just been there. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. My performance was very good, by the way, not to sound like an arrogant asshole, but much better, much better than that backstage horse shit. We had to suffer through this felt believable and real. There was an urgency in my voice. There was an unscripted feel. I mean, I was reacting to what Jim was saying. I wasn't memorizing my lines. I was reacting to what Jim was saying. And as a result of that, it came off very believable, but it was the hiccup and connection in the very beginning that I think gave this scene as insignificant as it really was, but still important to advance the story. It gave it a stamp of believability and reality that helped make up for the first act. By the time we got done with this scene with Jim and I on the phone, me being remote, um, it was actually Jim's scene. I was just on the other end of the phone. By the time we got to the end of the scene, you forgot all about the hokey shit that happened in act one. Really good stuff. Go out of your way to see it. And the next match Meltzer called one of the best United States matches of 1991. We sort of explained it earlier. We, we sort of set the stage for Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham to be challenging the enforcers. As a reminder, they broke Barry's hand. He can't wrestle. So they introduce a mystery tag team partner for Dustin. And it's revealed to be Ricky steamboat, huge reaction from the crowd, legitimately a surprise. And, um, Anderson and Zabisco sell it. Great. Uh, Meltzer would write, I believe this is the first time steamboat and Anderson have ever worked together and each strength as worker brings out the best in the other steamboat was almost like an artist out there. He was in for a seven minute heat spot, which should be aired at every wrestling school as to how to work a baby face in building the heat in a tag match. Uh, after all sorts of hot moves and near tags, finally Rhodes made the hot tag. And after Rhodes bulldog, Anderson steamboat pinned him with the flying body press off the top rope and what came off as a pretty, uh, pretty sleazy on TV. They later announced that a protest had been filed. And that the enforcers were claiming since steamboat wasn't on the original contract, they should get the belts back, but they teased that they'll have a decision by the end of the show, but then go off the air telling people you've got to call the 900 line to find out what the decision was, but it really is an incredible match four and a quarter stars. Uh, dusty's trying to position his boy to be a big deal here. And this is a great spot for him to be in the returning world champ working with one of the best performers of the era, Arn Anderson. Their magic out there, really the best match on the show. And I don't think it's even close. Not n- no, I, I would agree with you. And I would agree with Dave Meltzer again. Fuck. This is getting to be a little monotonous. <clears throat> we got to mix this up, but there's no denying it. Keep in mind, you know, and I encourage people to go back and watch the show. WWE network. It's worth it. It's worth, worth every nickel of it to be, to be able to go back and watch guys like Arn Anderson and yes, Larry Zabisco. Larry was great here. I mean, that was a great tag team. Um, Arn Anderson was phenomenal, you know, to see Ricky steamboat. If it's not at the top of his game, he was damn close to it, but take a look at, you know, Dustin Runnels here, 21 years old. Now, I, I heard that's what Jim Ross said. I don't know if he was 22 or 23, but however old um, Dustin was here, he was pretty new to the business. Right. 
oh my God, did he, he didn't look like he didn't belong in there. No, he didn't look like dad was giving him a push and surrounding him with some of the best talent in the company or in the world for that matter. And arguably, um, he didn't, he looked like he deserved, not only did he look like he deserved to be there, I think the fact because he was, you know, he was the younger, less experienced half of the Wyndham Rhodes tag team. And now he was really the underdog. You couldn't have put, you know, a, a more seasoned person in that role. It wouldn't have worked as well. So Dustin played his role. Dustin was in a perfect role as the, the young 21-year-old rookie under the, working with the veteran Barry Wyndham at that time to only lose that veteran as your partner and be up against the odds are now against you. You're being thrown into the wolves. Yes, you have a mystery partner, but we don't know who that is. We certainly couldn't imagine it would be somebody as big as Ricky, the dragon steamboat. And then when Ricky, the dragon steamboat comes out in that fucking ridiculous dragon gimmick. Oh, oh my God. Awful. Not, not forgetting for a moment that this match is one of the best matches I've seen in a long time. And may hold up as one of the best best tag team matches of all times in some circles. The fucking gimmick in the beginning was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, it was painful, painful to watch. Couldn't imagine being Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone at this point, trying to figure out. And in fact, I think it was Jim Ross or Tony. I can't remember which. Had, I don't know. Could be a Japanese guy under that dragon mask. Oh, painful. But once that had once that. Uh, Dragon head came off and revealed. Didn't matter. Crowd forgot how stupid it was or how ridiculous it was. I did. I was just watching the crowd react this morning, and it just worked. It worked especially because of the, well, it, not especially, but I would have been surprised had it not worked as well as it did in Savannah, you know, Ricky's backyard, so to speak. Um, huge name for himself coming off such a great series of matches and great matches with Flair. Oh, my God. The timing, the execution, with the exception of the ridiculous gimmick, and everything else that followed the reveal was off the freaking charts. And it over-delivered. Let's talk about over-delivering on expectations. Yeah. yeah. People, you know who you are. Are you listening? Are you taking notes? This is not costing you a nickel. Don't set your expectations so high for surprises because even if you deliver, people are let down. And oh my God, if you fail to deliver even just a little bit, it goes the other way on you. If you have a surprise, let it just be a freaking surprise. Don't promote the surprise. Right? What, don't what, what don't raise the expectations to the surprise. Just let it be a freaking surprise, will you? Sorry. How come at the end of that you didn't say, Tony? I'm not going to do that. But I mean, that's what you're saying. Why not just say it? Yeah. Yes, Tony. <laughs> Not loud. You're doing everything else right. Come on. Come on. If it's going to be a surprise, let it be a surprise. Don't make such a big deal out of the surprise that even when you reveal the surprise, it doesn't matter anymore. Come on. And Nick. conversely, yes, 
if you under if you under promote if you don't create so much buildup and anticipation and surprise and you just deliver the surprise even if it's not quite as big of a surprise as you'd like to have it'll mean more anyway because it's added value it's bonus you didn't over promote it you're just over delivering on something that no one expected <gasps> that's what a surprise is supposed to do Well, let's talk about the next segment here on the show. We've got a tape of Jushin Thunder Liger and, um, Jim does a nice job throwing to the videotape as he calls it. He's announcing that we've got one of the best junior heavyweights of our lifetime, uh, coming into the promotion and he should be here around Christmas time. And we see him working in these clips with, uh, Chris Benoit under hood and without and a few other. Uh, talent as well, but it's a pretty cool little presentation to show you what this guy is capable of, even if it is essentially just uh, a collection of high spots, but it was fun to see, you know, uh, a vignette that wasn't as much character as much as it was spectacle. When the WWF would introduce a character, they're going to try to show you this person out of the ring and explaining who they are and what they're about and what their motivation is and what their angle is, so to speak. Whereas here, no, man, we're showing you what this guy's capable of doing. And I think that's a, a nice change of pace. what do you think? I agreed. Of course, I immediately, when I saw it, I, I started, you know, looking for the, some of the early shots of Chris Benoit. You know, I love looking at people back when they were, you know, beginning in their careers or early in their careers. I always get a big kick out of doing that whenever we do these shows. So that was my first thought, but yeah, I think the presentation, it was different. It was unique. You know, they had, you know, it was from Japan. So you saw a lot of the Japanese people in the background and, you know, you heard the music and, and some of the commentary. So it, it had that bigger international feel and like there's some, Oh yeah. Wrestling's really big here, but there's some big stuff going on on the other side of the planet. I love all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was well done. Well, let's also mention that Liger, according to Meltzer, was supposed to be flown in here to do an interview with Missy Hyatt, but instead they save him a trip, show the tape, and they have Missy interview Marcus Alexander Bagwell. And uh, Meltzer would say, clearly being pushed for the little girls. That obvious pushing of pretty boy baby faces works against the faces in many parts of the country, and that name won't be much of a help either because male wrestling fans aren't going to like pretty boys to begin with especially with a preppy looking pretty boy with a rich snobby name. So yeah, Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Missy Hyatt. What'd you think of their little skit? Uh, I mean, for what it was, it was fine. I, you know, God, I wish I disagreed with Dave on this one. Cause I'm just getting tired of this. But he was, it was a bad character for him. Dave was right. I don't need to repeat what he already said. I mean, it was just, it, if you're going to bring the guy out as a heel, great. Great. Perfect. Good character. But, you know, as a white meat baby face? Nope. Let's talk about the, uh, the next skit here. We've got Paulie doing an interview talking about how he hates we all saw take place earlier today, both he and his client, Rick rude are ashamed of the actions of Lex Luger and ashamed to even know him. 
because a real tragedy occurred and it's unfortunate that sting is going to have to forfeit his United States championship. If he's not able to go by bell time, because that was in the contract and it stipulated that if he couldn't be here to defend it, that he would forfeit the belt for Rick rude that sets up the stage and is a little bit of a callback to when we saw Bobby Eaton reminding saying you got plenty of time. Let's get to the next match. Brian Pillman retains his WCW light heavyweight title and one of the ugliest belts ever made pending Johnny B bad in four minutes and 19 seconds. Meltzer says it had to be hard for these two to follow the previous match, but they did fine. They trade a lot of high flying hot spots and just didn't have enough time to develop it into a great match. One nice spot saw bad come off the top rope and be met with a drop kick by Pillman. The finish saw bad hit Pillman with the knockout punch, but Teddy long had the ref distracted. So Pillman wasn't pinned as bad argued with long Pillman cradled him from behind and the actual cradle wasn't exactly textbook after the match bad officially turned face by hitting long with the punch two and a half stars. You and I've talked about this for, I don't know, over a year. Johnny B bad was criminally misused a legit badass. He was a great public speaker, uh, golden gloves, boxer, and he pulled Sable for God's sake. That guy can sell too. <laughs> it, it, it feels like this guy could have been a major player, but he sided with this gimmick and to the surprise of most, he made it work. And this match was better than I expected. what do you think? Yeah, he made it work. It was better than anybody should have expected. Uh, I'll ditto everything that you just said, but I want to, before I say this, I want to go back to the promo right before this, you covered. Oh it yeah. Well. With, uh, with Polly dangerously. Yeah. I, w- I just want to go back to that a little bit. <clears throat> Such a phenomenal piece of business. And one of the reasons that this show worked as well as it did, as I said at the very beginning is because dusty did such a great job in a formatting of the show and making sure that we were building anticipation leading into the, you know, into the, the, the match with Rude and sting. It was great, basic three act storytelling, but a very important piece of that story is occurring in this interview. And it's the reason I want to spend a little time talking about this. So often today we see interviews that really don't accomplish much. They don't necessarily advance story very well. They don't always, well, for the most part, they do very little to enhance a, 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 a talent's current character. You know, they may, you may do a, 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 an interview or a promo or some kind of in-ring thing that, yeah, wasn't bad, you know, didn't hurt anything as far as the character goes, didn't really advance story, but it wasn't bad. It was, you know, it was good entertainment, filled the segment. But it doesn't really move anything forward. It's not really necessary. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. So often we see prom interviews, in-ring, backstage, whatever. They're just not really necessary. They're being done because we feel like we have to do them and we need to check the box to make sure we've done everything we're supposed to do before you know a story unfolds. But unless the quality of that content moves the story forward or makes it more interesting. It's just a fucking waste of time. And by being a waste of time and not advancing story, you're actually hurting the character because you're putting the character in a situation 
where the audience wants to be entertained. That's why they came. And now you're giving them something that isn't really very satisfying. Guess what? That hurts the character involved in the scene, whether it's an in-ring promo, backstage, whatever the case may be. This is a perfect example of the opposite of that. This, this is something in a, a lot of credit. This is another reason why I wanted to pump the brakes on this and talk about it for a minute. People often talk about, wow, why don't we have more managers today? Well, because you don't have anybody that can talk. Because when you have great talent, you know, the Jerichos, the MJFs, you know, the, the, the Randy Ortons of the world, you know, people that can go out there and really cut a promo, if they have to they can do that. If they got to stick to a script, they can do that. But there's not a lot of talent that aren't wrestlers that have that ability. And to, to have a manager, the only reason you should have a manager is to speak for you if you're just not that good out of a mic, Brock Lesnar, or to enhance and create more heat for you. And Paul did such a phenomenal job of both here. Paul, Paul Heyman, and I... I'm going to say this, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got a long and colorful career and relationship with Paul. Um, I don't think I really appreciated or understood just how great Paul Heyman is and was until going back and reviewing these shows and seeing the talent that Paul had here in 1991. This is 30 years ago, folks. And this promo, I guarantee you, nobody wrote it down and gave it to him. Right. This was Paul knowing the story, working with his, his talent that he knew he, his job was to get his talent over, not to get himself over, get his talent over. He got himself over in the process, don't get me wrong, but he did such a phenomenal job here of advancing the story and the characters in the story and moving it along that I really encourage people, I don't care how long you, th what you think you know and how long you've been in the business or you're hoping to get into the business next week. Go back and watch Paul's promo here because it's, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a great promo, but it's such an important advance of this particular story in a believable way that really added depth to it. What we were talking about before this, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the Johnny B. Bad Brian Pillman match. Yeah, Johnny B. Bad, Brian Pillman. I, I wish Johnny, you know, Johnny, we talked about it. We've talked about it ad nauseum. I won't repeat ourselves. But one of the things that Johnny had, in addition to all the things you've given him credit for, he's, he, had, he had that magic charisma. He had that intangible quality that you can't put in a pill, you can't put in a syringe, you can't learn from reading a book, you can't go to college and study it. You're either born with it and it comes naturally to you, like sometimes a person's ability to sing comes naturally or a person's ability to just in an incredible way, be able to play music just simply by listening to it. Those are unique one in a million type of talents. And, 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 and in Johnny's case, he had that charisma. He had all of the above and he, yes, he was, he settled, was settled with a bad gimmick, but by God, he worked his guts out to get it over. And, uh, is carrying on today because of that talent and that charisma and is successful today still as a result of it. It's too bad. We didn't get to see what Johnny B. Bad could have been, what right. Mark Merrow could have been. You know, Johnny B. Bad, I don't think could have been anything unless he would have turned heel and, sh you know, shed all of the, you know, little Richard gimmicks that he brought with him in WCW or that he was given in WCW, I should say. 
Um, had he shed all that and been the legit, you know, badass that he was, um, he could have been something much bigger because he had all the tools for sure. Next up, we've got, uh, the big payoff that we've been building to the entire show. It's Rick rude. He's going to come out with his uh, manager, Paulie dangerously. Rude's got his, uh, blue, simply ravishing robe on. And, uh, Paulie's going to start cutting a promo laying out exactly what's going to happen. And this is like right out of a movie. It's sort of like, you know, you see the big payoff to the end of this movie and the villain is going to have the upper hand right at the end. And he's going to lay out his entire plan for you just so the baby face can undo all those plans. Except in this case, it doesn't quite happen that way. He gets more and more frantic about, Hey, we got to get this match started now. We do a little picture in a picture and on the second screen, here comes the ambulance with the siren going and the lights on, and it pulls up to the back of the building and sting hops out where, where his tights have been cut. He's got his knee wrapped in tape. All the baby faces are there to welcome him. He's going to scoot into the ring or, or, or make his way to the ramp and it's on Rick rude attacks him right there. You see that rude's got the United States title airbrushed on his tights. Like he had a few years prior for the intercontinental title. Really a phenomenal storytelling mechanism for this entire show. Probably one of the better pieces that WCW had for all of 91. The match isn't very long though. Rude does become champion. So it didn't play out exactly like that movie scenario. Four minutes and 50 seconds and Rude is now your champ. And, um, Meltzer would say it was pretty predictable, almost too hokey. Although probably the best job they've done in getting sting over as a face since the horseman turned on him in early 90, he sells the knee all the way, but makes a few comebacks and kicks out once from a telephone shot after sting hit a DDT. He went after Paul Lee, but rude clipped his knee from behind and pinned him holding the trunks. After all that work on giving sting an excuse to lose between the pre-match attack and constantly working the knee, they should have done a stronger finish. But it was very intense for such a short match. Three stars. I loved it. What'd you think? I loved it. And if this would have been a pay-per-view match, I might have agreed with some of Dave's comments. But keep in mind, folks, this was a television property or television program, not a not a pay-per-view. Yeah. And I think it put a lot of heat on Rick. It left the door wide open for a great program between Rick and Sting. It made Sting a bigger babyface than he already was. I think if you were to really just sit back and analyze this, not from a you know subjective what 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 are my tastes you know point of view, but look at look at this as a television program that's leading to something bigger. I think this might have been some of Dusty's best work. Yeah. As a as a writer and a producer, I think this for me out of all the shows that we've gone over and watched where Dusty had <clears throat> either control of it or a large control of it. Um this might have been Dust some of Dusty's best work in total. He's done some other great he had done some other great stuff, don't get me wrong. But from, from the beginning of the episode to the end of episode, and more importantly, all the stuff that happened in between, I'm, this might have been some of Dusty's best work. Really good stuff. Go out of your way to see it. Uh, I like this. Uh, I thought it was well done. Um, 
I don't know how much more we could put this over. Let's go to our main event. Lex Luger is going to be defending his world title against Rick Steiner. Rick Steiner's out with Scott Steiner in the most piss poor excuse for a t-shirt I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Harley race and Mr. Hughes are going to round out Lex Luger's trio. Meltzer says after all that everyone had seen, these guys were just in a bad spot. The crowd wasn't into it and Luger just didn't seem right. He came into the match with a fat lip and a black eye, courtesy of a crossed up hotspot earlier in the week against zinc. The match didn't have it until the end when they turned it into a five way with Mr. Hughes, Harley race and Scott Steiner all becoming involved. They didn't call for the DQ. Rick gave Luger a belly to belly suplex. When all, you know, what broke loose, Scott hit the Frankensteiner on Hughes, Rick Steiner, power slammed Luger, and then suplexed race into the ring. And while the ref was distracted, Luger hit Rick Steiner with the belt and pinned him two and a quarter stars, probably a little overbooked there at the end. Uh, but it was cool that they still managed to get the Frankensteiner spot in. That's really uh, something that a lot of fans expect to see when they go to a WCW show in this era. And since Scott wasn't on the card, they found a way to do it. We nearly killed Mr. Hughes in the process, but he lived. Uh, what'd you think of the match? Um, for what it was, I mean, for what it was, it was fair. I, I would, I would give it a seven on a scale of one to 10. It told a story. Um, Lex was as good as he was capable of being at that time. He didn't have a lot of range and his character really wasn't, um, as over, I guess, as it would be later on, later on in the nineties <clears throat> when he came back. But, you know, I thought it was fair. Here's where I think it could have, you know, this, I think it's this Thursday, Conrad, I'm going to do another, you know, be the booker yep. on adfreeshows.com. So to warm myself up a little bit, um, let's play a little bit of be the booker. And if, if I would have been in Dusty's office and Dusty would have <laughs> had any reason at all to listen to anything that I would have had to say at the time. But if I would have known that, what I know now, Dusty would have listened to me. I think given the nature of the rude sting setup and story, meaning sting only had a certain amount of time to get to the hospital. I think if they would have played that out a little differently and whether it be Jim Hurd or the board of directors or Ted Turner called in whatever and gave sting to the end of the show to make it to the building, find a way creatively within the sting rude story to move that match to the end of the night. Because that was, that was the match that was holding the audience's attention. This, the great act, well, the attempt at an act one, but the fact that you fucking had one to begin with, you know, to set up the story, phenomenal act two. Now you're into the act three with Sting and Rude. Once that story's over, because that's what you've built up to. Nobody's been building up to this match. There was no reason for anybody to be excited about this match. Yes, they checked a couple boxes promotionally and all that, but emotionally, nobody was invested in this. Had they been able, 2020 hindsight, you be the booker. Now, even I'm playing this silly game. I think if they would have found a way to flip flop, uh, sting and rude to the end, it would have made that story even more dramatic. It would have left everybody with a much, well, it would have ended with heat. So, but that'd have been okay. That would have made the heat even more valuable. And I think the Steiner Lex match would have been 
reacted to differently. I think they could have gotten more reaction. They could have probably told a better story because they were getting more reaction because people wouldn't have already lost interest in something that was so secondary to what they had just seen. That makes sense. It does. It does. Let's talk about what Meltzer wrote of the show. By the way, we've already given you the spoiler. 91.5% of the viewers of this show who subscribed to The Observer gave it a thumbs up. It's almost unanimous. Uh, Steamboat and Rhodes against the Enforcers win the best match poll. Worst match is a little closer, but still, people thought Chip the Firebreaker, uh, maybe not ready for prime time. Meltzer had this to say. WCW made the full 180-degree turn from the July Bash one of the worst major shows in recent history to a clear cut winner on November 19th in Savannah, Georgia. The class show was enough to make a lot of people see some light at the end of a three year long tunnel that for a long time seemed to be going nowhere. That has been WCW under the Turner regime. Clearly since hitting rock bottom, the organization has made some definite improvements, particularly on the talent side, the addition of Rick steamboat who debuted Tuesday at the clash was just the latest in a series of additions and changes that have reversed the company's direction. If Tuesday was any indication, Steamboat is clearly ready to break out of the pack and regain the form that made many feel he was the best wrestler in the world for the first half of 1989. If nothing else, the tag team title feud, which starts Thanksgiving night at the Omni in Atlanta with Steamboat and Dustin defending the tag titles against Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton should provide the hottest matches on a consistent basis that this country has seen in quite a while. But hot matches aren't what this business is about in 1991, but rather the combination of returns of Steamboat, Abdullah the Butcher, and Cactus Jack with Paul E. Dangerously being recast as a manager and Rick Rude coming in as a top singles heel have started the facelift process that WCW has so badly needed. This is uh, getting a lot of high praise here. You disagree? It's a matter of perspective, but at the end of 1991 or 1992, what did all of this creative and talent shift that Meltzer was so supportive of, what was the net effect? Can't remember. Nothing. Yeah. Zero. Nada. Again, that's, you know, that's, look, Dave's got his opinion. Certainly, you know, don't think he shouldn't have his opinion. I respect his opinion in some cases, but you know, Dave's Dave spends way too much time when he writes, um, giving his expert opinion about business that he has no idea, uh, about, he was never in it. He just sits back and talks about it and writes about it from a very subjective opinion. And I think this is another perfect example of, you know, he was all excited about all this talent shift that's coming in. It's a much needed facelift. And then what happened? It wasn't the talent. It wasn't the talent. WCW's issues were not talent issues. They were creative issues. They were storytelling issues. They were personnel issues, but you know, it's a, it's a good observation. You know, it's, it's a good, well, a lot of people you're bringing in recasting dangerously, bringing rude in much seated face life, easy thing to write about. And it's not untrue, by the way, I'm not saying it's not true. Just saying it didn't matter. Well, boys and girls, let's, uh, let's tell you what's coming next week, uh, but stay tuned. We've got a handful of questions from the uh, listeners of our show who follow us on Twitter. And if you've got a question about next week's show, ask it on twitter right now it's at 83 weeks next week's topic world war three 1996 
This went down on November 24th, 1996 from the Norfolk scope in Virginia. And your main event, of course, is a 60 man world war three battle Royal uh, for a future world heavyweight championship title shot. We also get the contract signing here for Hollywood Hogan and Roddy Piper at Starcade. We've got a triple threat match for the tag titles with the nasty boys and the faces of fear in there with the outsiders. The cruiserweight title is on the line when Malenko defends against psychosis. Uh, Harlem heat is going to be taking on the amazing French Canadians with a stipulation that if the heat win sister Sherry gets a few minutes with Colonel Robert Parker. We've also got the giant working with Jeff Jarrett, Chris Jericho, believe it or not, will have one arm tied behind his back when he takes on the heel referee, Nick Patrick and for the J crown championship. And what an opener this is Ultimo dragon in there with Ray Mysterio jr. Boy, this is the best of times for WCW. And it's just five years after the show we just watched. It'll be fun to watch them back to back. Eric, what are you looking forward to talking about for world war three 96? All of it, all of it. I mean, I, I'm going to have to go back and watch it obviously to kind of I mean, thank you for refreshing my memory as you did there, but I have to go back and watch it to, to really get a feel for, you know, what I'm going to be most interested in talking about, but, um, all of it. So it, it, look, we're, we're talking about a lot of transition in a short period of time. And I love when we get in, go in, in, involved in these conversations, much like I did when I kind of revisited the Heyman interview in the middle of the show and why I felt it was so important. I also love watching the evolution of the way things are presented and why and how it, you know, manifests in what we, what we watch today. So all of it, I'm excited about all of it. Don't forget, you get all these shows early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. Plus, if you hurry, you can be a part of our Be the Booker event with uh, Eric this week. Don't forget, you've also got that exclusive Jim Hurd interview that all of the internet is talking about. And uh, we rounded out the month uh, with uh, Eric Fires Back and Eric reading some mean tweets, which was a blast, and we're going to do more of that. Uh, so check it all out at adfreeshows.com. Let's jump to some questions here from this clash and then we'll wrap things up here. There's actually some pretty good ones. Rajiv wants to know what is Eric's thoughts on the crooked WCW logo on the entrance? I know it was done on purpose, but I want your opinion. What'd you think, Eric? It looked like a mistake. <laughs> it looked like sloppy production. It's all I can say. I mean, dumb. Mike Eldridge wants to know Eric, pick your poison. You have to give a main event push to one of these wrestlers. Who are you choosing Van Hammer or PN news? Van Hammer. Yeah, no, no doubt. Van Hammer, especially after watching him on this episode. There's yeah. No, absolute, it, it changed my opinion no of him in a, in a major way. Cause you know, he, I, I'd always heard all the heat stuff and maybe, uh, maybe we're heaping too much praise on Cactus Jack here, but when he's with you later in WCW as part of Raven's flock and all that. It was just sort of there for me, but you go back to when he came in with such a big push and I could see, you know, obviously it didn't work out, but I could see how people really thought this could be the answer. Yeah, no, as do I. And when, just as you were saying that about, you know, when he came back as a part of Raven's flock, <clears throat> I, you know, I don't know if he had drug problems. I don't know if he just became disillusioned about the wrestling business in general, if he had personal problems at home. I don't know. I don't know anything about Van Hammer at the time, but I would say if you go back as you know, the image just popped in my head, as you said it about, you know, Van Hammer with Raven's flock, that guy and the guy we would just watch today were two different human beings, right? They were two different people. 
One was fully engaged and putting forth 110% effort, and the other was just there for the ride. Well, we, uh, we hope that he's pulled the nose up. I know we had some substance stuff earlier this year and, uh, it wasn't all high fives. So I'm hoping that everybody's okay and that he's in a better place, uh, because I was entertained by him on this show. Uh, let's do two more and then we'll wrap things up. Steven wants to know how was the clash backstage? Did the vibe feel like a pay-per-view or is it more of maybe what nitro would feel like later just because it's live? That's a really good question. Um, for me personally, clashes had more urgency and energy in a positive way. I mean, it just felt you get that buzz. It's hard for me to describe what it's like, but you just, you, you get to the building and the energy level is so much higher. You're more excited about everything you're doing. Um, Every, there's, you know, even, you know, when people are walking backstage, their pace is about, you know, half a step faster. Just everything has a different sense of positive urgency that I love doing clashes for whatever reasons. And I guess a lot of it has to do, you know, doing a live television show is much more intense than doing a live pay-per-view in the sense that, you know, you've got commercial breaks, you're coordinating, you know, with the studio. I mean, you're, you're not just flying solo. When you're on a pay-per-view, you know, as long as you're off the air in two hours and 49 and 49 seconds or whatever, 59 seconds, you're good. Everything that happens from the beginning to the end is kind of up to you. You can do whatever you want to do. But when you're doing live television, that's a whole different animal. Maybe that's what creates the added energy, but I always love doing clashes more than doing pay-per-views in, in WCW for that reason, because it just felt better. Um, and I would liken the feeling and the energy of those clashes um, to more to Nitro than to a pay-per-view to get around to actually answering the question. Last one. Uh, the fifth horseman wants to know, can Eric comment as to how he was settling in the WCW after being here a few months, did seeing old AWA faces like Tom Zink help Eric feel more comfortable in this work environment, uh, or was he pretty good with everybody by this point in November? Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I kept to myself, <laughs> you know, I've never really been a social person. I mean, I am, I like being around people. I, I love to talk to people, but I've, you know, when I'm in a working environment and look, when I would show up at cause again, I didn't live in Atlanta at the time. So people need to remember, and it may not seem like a big deal and it shouldn't make much difference, but it does because for example, on this clash of champions, what, whatever day was on November 19th, unless I was already in Atlanta, I flew in for this show. You know, I didn't talk to anybody during the week. I didn't chat with anybody on the phone during the week. I was about as far removed from what was going on in WCW as anybody watching at home. And so when I, I would show up, to me, that was my working environment. And I'm, 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 everybody else has got their jobs, and it just goes against my nature to go running up to somebody when they're in the middle of their job and have a social conversation. You know what I mean? And when you showed up at a live television show, you were pretty busy from the minute you walked through the door till the minute you got, got done at night. Yes, there are minutes of downtimes and things like that for you personally, but everybody else around you is working on shit. So I never really interacted with anybody, you know, in 90, certainly in 1991, I, I was, 
I was not uncomfortable and I was not overly comfortable. I showed up, I did my work and I went home and tried to keep my head down and stay away from politics. So I, I wasn't, I, I didn't feel, look, I, clearly I was a new kid on the block. There's some of that, you know, you can't help but escape that. But, you know, I was friends with Dusty. Dusty and I connected right away. You know, um, other people, you know, I won't necessarily mention a bunch of names, but other people I became comfortable, you know, that were close to Dusty, I, they kind of became close to me as a result. Um, so I felt perfectly at home, but I wasn't close to anybody really. Well, not much has changed, but we no, do not much has changed. I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I recognize it in myself and I know that it's not necessarily a strength, but again, it's, it's what I'm working now when I'm not working, I'm a different animal. You know, I, I have two friends, Conrad, you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think Bruce will still talk to me after I've been busting WWE shops for the last couple of weeks. I'm not really sure. Or actually I will. Cause he sent me a text this morning. So I guess I'm still good. But, um, but that's because I live in the middle of nowhere and I prefer it that way. Well, you have three oh, four if you count Silva and Hogan. No, well, yeah. I mean, I just I talked to Hulk twice this morning, actually, while I was getting ready to do this show. Um, and we're going to be spending some time together in December when Mrs. B and I head down to Clearwater to spend the holidays with our son, Garrett, and our daughter-in-law, Mary Jane. So we're going to be down there, and we're going to be hanging out with the Baleas and enjoying it. So, yeah, I mean, I actually have friends. I don't want to make it sound like I don't have any friends. But I'm just not a social animal. I'm not, not that guy. But you I do turn parties. You do turn it on on adfreeshows.com though. Like you Well, got, that's different though. That's different. I'm not arguing that. Is I'm that, just saying that those my, that's our family. Yeah, that's, that's what I was family at Adfree Show. That's different. We've had a lot of fun catching up at adfreeshows.com. Eric's developed some personal relationships over there with a lot of our our, our family members at adfreeshows.com and Man, I hope you guys check it out. I hope it's uh, what you're looking for. We're pretty proud of what we're putting together, and we've got more great stuff to come. You don't want to miss it, and you don't want to miss next week's episode, World War Three, 1996, right here. Don't forget to leave us a uh, five-star review if you think we've earned it. Hit the subscribe button. Tell your friends, and don't forget we've got lots of cool stuff happening over at our YouTube channel as well. Hit the subscribe and notification bell because you're going to want to see some of the stuff we've got coming out there before anybody else including some really fun giveaways that I don't think I even knew was possible, but it's going to be happening on YouTube. Check it out. 83 weeks on YouTube. You can also uh, support us at 83 weeks.com. Pick up a t-shirt at ericbischoff.com or just get all this stuff early and ad free at adfreeshows.com. We'd love to have your interaction on Twitter as well. He is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here for world war three. From 1996 on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Perhaps the best way to introduce a friend to 83 weeks is to direct them to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Be sure to hit the subscribe button right now. It's totally free. You get a sneak peek of upcoming shows, plus some exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. And perhaps best of all, some great new giveaways coming your way. Absolutely for free. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and be sure to check out the shirts over at ericbischoff.com. If it's been a while, we need to remind you we're adding new ones all the time. Plus there's tons of new gimmicks at boxofgimmicks.com. Like right now, we have some of Dave Silva's cover art on posters, lots of different ways to support the show. 
and be a part of the 83 Weeks community. It's youtube.com forward slash 83 weeks. Of course, ericbischoff.com. And who could forget boxofgimmicks.com. And hey, if you'd like to advertise your product or service here on the show and hear Eric Bischoff brag about you or your business, it's easy to make that happen. Just go to advertisewithconrad.com. Telling you. The most hated jeweler in America makes holiday shopping easy. Steven Singer has the perfect gift for that special someone who's the center of your universe. The one who your whole world revolves around that person. Who's the star of your love story. Show her it's her with Steven's brand new exclusive star of love diamond necklace. Picture it a star necklace covered in real sparkling diamonds with an open heart in the center. This beautiful necklace is just $128 plus fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real jewelry from a real jeweler you can trust. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the star of love diamond necklace. Steven's real expert jewelers are available seven days a week to help you. In his showroom at the other corner of the eighth and Walnut in Philly by appointment only or through email, chat, phone, text, or virtual video appointments, real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Hey, before we get out of here, I want to remind you don't put Christmas on a credit card. Instead, get rid of all that credit card debt right now, once and for all, and even skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. It really is that simple. In just about 10 minutes, we're going to show you how much you can save for free. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. But we're licensed in more than 40 states and ready to hook you up. Go check out our five-star reviews over at SaveWithConrad.com and then get a quick quote and find out how much money you can save for free. We've helped thousands of our podcast listeners, just like you, save their family tens of thousands of dollars. 50, 60, 70, 80, even a hundred thousand bucks you could save. And it just takes about 10 minutes to get started right now at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. You know what to do. Go to savewithconrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.